Good afternoon. Welcome to the Tuesday, August 15th, 2023 Lawrence City Commission meeting. We will begin with an executive session, followed by um, coming back at 545 with an explanation from Sherry about how our meeting will go. I would move to approve a motion to recess an executive session for approximately 45 minutes to discuss privileged legal communications with the city's attorneys regarding potential litigation pursuant to KSA 7543-4319B2. The justification for the executive session is to keep attorney-client privilege matters confidential at this time. The city commission will resume its regular meeting in the city commission room at approximately 545 after the executive session is concluded. Second. The first and second, all in favor? Aye. Opposed, it passes five to zero. We are in executive session for 45 minutes. All right, we are back from executive session and we have nothing to report. So we will now go to Sherry for instructions on our meeting. Thank you, Mayor, and good evening, everyone. If you are attending this meeting via Zoom, please ensure you are muted and your video is off when you are not actively participating in the meeting. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. If you have any trouble, you can send a chat, and all chats go directly to the meeting host. The city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. When the mayor calls for public comment, those attending in person should approach the podium to indicate they wish to speak. And the podium can be raised and lowered. Those participating via Zoom should use the raise hand function to indicate they wish to speak. Please leave your virtual hand raised until you are called on. Participants will be called upon in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. Again, please state your name before speaking, and all comments will be limited to three minutes. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Sherry. So we'll move on to item B, which is to approve the agenda. The City Commission reserves the right to amend, supplement, or reorder the agenda during the meeting. Do I have a motion? Does any commissioner want to change the agenda? No, I'll accept a motion. Move to approve the agenda as presented. Second. Okay. First and a second, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? It passes five to zero. On to item C, which is our proclamations. And we have one proclamation this week, which is to proclaim the week of August 20th through the 26th, as 2023, as Black Business Awareness Week. And I believe we have somebody here to speak. Please, come on up. All right, I have all this tech because I want to make sure I, I get my words right. Um, first, I want to just say thank you to uh, to the mayor, to our city commission team, and to our city management team um, for having us here, for inviting me in. My name is Devontae Green, and I serve as the executive director for Black 30, um, which is a newly minted entrepreneurial support organization here in town. Um, and on behalf of Black 30 and what we believe is a really, really important matter, um, this 
proclamation and this move is really about economic development um, for all of us. And currently, there exist over 3 million black businesses in the United States of America right now. Um, that translates to nearly $206 billion in annual revenue. And that brings in about 3.5 million jobs to America. So again, this is about economic development for all of us. And we know that one true tactic for elevating the whole is also elevating our marginalized. We believe that when you center our marginalized communities um, in an intentional way in entrepreneurial pursuits, then the entire community will be wealthier, will be safer, uh, will be healthier, and of course, happier. Um, and I don't think there's anybody in Lawrence who is against being wealthier, healthier, and happier. So thank you, and this is for our home. And before I go, um, wanted to do a plug for an upcoming uh, event to celebrate Black Business um, Month and Week. It's called the Black Business Market, and it'll take place August 25th from 5 to 10 at 409 uh, Boutique, which is a Black-owned uh, event space uh, on 12th Street. So this will be an opportunity for you to join us, celebrate National Black uh, Business Month by honoring our local um, black business owners. This event will feature previous and current black business leaders and in the hopes to inspire that next generation of black entrepreneurship. Um, some of the vendors will uh, include black artists, uh, food trucks, music, dance uh, lessons, and more. So we hope to see uh, more of the community come out and support that event. So thank you. Thank you, Devante. I'll now read the proclamation. Whereas National Black Business Month was founded in 2004 by John William Templeton and Frederick Jordan Sr. to recognize the essential contributions of black-owned businesses throughout our country and to support their continued development. And whereas the U.S. Census estimates that 3.1 million black-owned businesses in the United States generate approximately $206 billion annually, and whereas black entrepreneurs start their businesses with an average of $35,000 of capital, white entrepreneurs entrepreneurs start their business with an average of $107,000 in capital. Additionally, only 4% of black American businesses survive the startup stage, even though 20% of black Americans start businesses. And whereas black entre entrepreneurs are nearly three times more likely than white entrepreneurs to have business growth and profitability neg negatively impacted by lack of a financial capital. And whereas promoting and supporting black owned businesses is a critical step in addressing the race, the racial wealth gap that continues to exist in our state and the country rooted in centuries of slavery, segregation, redlining, and other forms of systemic social and e economic oppression. And whereas despite these hardships, the majority of black American small business owners, 55%, want to grow their business rather than sustain it, sell it, or open a new location. Now therefore, I, Lisa Larson, Mayor of the City of Lawrence, Kansas, do hereby proclaim August 20th through the 26th of 2023 as Black Business Awareness Week in Lawrence. And I challenge everyone in Lawrence to boost black American businesses by redirecting purchasing dollars to black owned businesses, sharing their, your experience with black owned products and services, and advocating strongly for the prosperity and economic security of black entrepreneurs in our community. Thank you.
All right, item D, public comment. The public is allowed to speak on issues or items that are not scheduled for discussion on the agenda. Comments should be limited to issues and items germane to the business of the governing body. The commission will not discuss or debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented during this time. Each person will be limited to three minutes. So is there any general public comment not related to any item on the agenda? Any general public comment? My name is Benita Yoder. I'm Chuck, 608 Kentucky. All you want to know what it takes to get the trash picked up in this town. Now, now, Chuck, no trash talk. The background is that a couple years ago, sometime during COVID, the city stopped picking up my trash regularly. Yeah, sometimes two, three weeks. And I would call and call and call and get it picked up and Finally, I said, look, I'm going to go to the city commission if you can't pick up my trash. So they sent a supervisor out, and uh, was it Rodriguez? Something like that. But he decided maybe the sanitation couldn't figure out if it was residential or commercial, because residential comes on Tuesdays and commercials on Wednesdays. I said, I don't care which day, as long as we know what day it is. That's right. So he told me it would be Tuesday. However, it's not consistent. Last week, trash wasn't picked up. I had to call, and it's kind of hard to get through to sanitation these days. I think I had several calls of you know, 15 minutes or something. Didn't get through at one point. Yesterday, I called and asked to arrange for trash service to be picked up today. And the woman patient said, well, it's your day. It'll be picked up. And I'm like, no, it needs to be a special order to pick up my trash. So, um, and I also asked for bulk and for yard waste in addition to a special. Called three times this morning because it didn't get picked up. Yeah, that's right. Tried calling multiple times this afternoon and the phones weren't ringing so I finally walked over to this building to see if I could go up to the city manager's office and I was not allowed to. So here I am and I know you can't give feedback yeah, but maybe they'll give you a credit for all those times you didn't get your sanitation service. Oh, that would be nice of the city commission. And all the time you stand on the phone calling. Whoa, that would be nice. But it'd actually be nice to get the trash picked up every morning of trash day. And that is my request. And a credit for all the rest of the really nice so there you have it, it's 608 Kentucky, just caddy quarter across that way. All right, we'll let the rest of the people talk now. All right, any other general public comment on items not on the agenda? If not, we'll go to Zoom. Anybody on Zoom, Sherry? No, Mayor. All right, we'll bring it back up here. We'll move on to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered under one motion and approved by one motion. There will be no separate discussion on these items. If discussion is desired, that item will be removed from the consent agenda by a member of the governing body and considered separately. 
Members of the public wishing to speak on an item that has been removed from the consent agenda will be limited to three minutes for comments. Any commissioners that would like to remove anything from the consent agenda? I'd like to remove E7A. Any others? Okay, if, if not, we'll go ahead and take a vote on that. Um, move for approval of the consent agenda. Wait a minute, whoa. Sorry, I was just making sure because we had the one quasi-judicial item. That's separate, though? That's... Well, we... Do we want we want to go ahead and address it? Got it. Got it. So Got it. Yep. We just need to see if pub, any member of the public wants to okay. that item. Okay. Got it. I thought we were separate there, but you're right. I forgot about that. So we have one item on the quasi-judicial consent item. Is there anybody in the public that would like to pull that item for discussion? Anybody on Zoom? There's no one on Zoom there. Okay, bring it back up here. Now I'll ask for a motion. I move for, for approval of the consent agenda with the exception of E7A. Second. I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? It passes five to zero. So we'll move to item E7A. I just uh, pulled it to keep my vote against it. Okay, got it. Any other? Put it. Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, we'll open up. Open it up for public comment from the audience. If not, on Zoom. No, Mayor. Or bring it back up to the commission for discussion and or a motion. No, I just want to say real quick. I I do continue to say a nay on this, and it's not because I don't believe in what's trying to be done. Um, and I know I was virtual last week, so it may have been hard to convey my sentiments. Um, but I think, you know, overall, if we have general consensus in the community, I think oftentimes we look to ordinances to be punitive. And But if we have a consensus of the community to move something, then we don't have to result to an ordinance in order to see impact. Um, so... That was a bit of, you know, for us not to be able to have that conversation last week, um, I felt like that was lost. Um, in addition to the offering of the sunset, um, I know that others thought that it may have been flippant to not include a sunset. But the idea of if something is important and if something of, of, of great importance to us, yes, we review it. But adding a sunset gives us the opportunity to create intentionality of coming back to it to either make adjustments, to amend it, to repeal it, or to tighten it if it needs to be tightened. So I, I was, again, still disappointed that we couldn't have a conversation around that to understand it. And it was treated as if it was unnecessary when sunsets are good policy tools that could help strengthen policy development and implementation. So um, I still plan to vote no. Um, we do have some work to do and, and as it relates to environmental sustainability and how that parallels and intersects with environmental justice. And I just hope one day we can continue to build upon that and 
be more intentional about that. Any other discussion? If not, ask for a motion. Okay. Uh, move, I move to adopt on second and final reading ordinance number 9996. Second. I got a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? No. Passes three to zero, uh, three to two, excuse me. Moving on to work session items. The work session provides an opportunity for the city commission to discuss items in greater detail. The commission will take no binding action on items presented during this time. Work session topics are eligible for live public comment. Members of the public wishing to speak on a work session item will be limited to three minutes for comments. Hi, Britt. Good evening, Mayor and Commissioners. I'm Britt Cromcano, the City's Economic Development Director. I'm also the uh, champion for the Prosperity and Economic Security Outcome Area for our City's Strategic Plan. So tonight... Excuse me, just one second. We're having a hard time hearing in the back. Um, can you speak maybe more directly into the mic? Oh, sure. I'm going to try to share my screen. Oh, yeah. I'm quite a bit louder oh, now. another level, Britt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, so tonight's uh, prosperity and economic security update has to do with childcare. We're gonna focus on that topic tonight. Before we do, I wanted to just do a reminder that prosperity and economic security uh, aims to foster an environment in which all people and all businesses have the opportunity for economic security. It intentionally acknowledges, removes, and prevents barriers created by systemic and institutional injustice. Our community succeeds because of collective prosperity and a vibrant, sustainable local economy. There are 10 uh, key performance indicators within this outcome area. Tonight's topic of childcare really focuses in on PES2, or the percent of residents rating Lawrence as a good or excellent place to work. One of the strategies under PES2 is to enhance childcare at all price levels. So tonight we have three guest speakers. We have Jackie Counts, who is with the KU Public Partnership. Uh, Jackie's gonna talk to us about what's happening with childcare on the state level. We also have Jill Jolliker, the uh, Assistant County Administrator with Douglas County. She can talk to us about what the county's doing, especially around childcare related to the community health plan. And finally, we'll have a, get a local update from Kim Polson. Kim is the director of the Children's Community Center, and she's gonna be telling us what's happening locally. Um, after that, we can go ahead and open it up for questions and discussions and um, continue our conversation. So with that, let me stop sharing here. And we'll see if Jackie is available. I'm not sure she, she's here yet. I don't. Is she on? Is she on Zoom? Um, sure. Do you, do you see if Jackie counts as on Zoom? I think she was really thinking we were going to go on a lot later than we did. <laughs> One of the things, is Jill Jolliker on? We could maybe have Jill start. Yeah, she's on. Let's go ahead. If we can turn it over to Jill, I know she's probably going to want to share the screen. So, Kurt, if you could help us with that. We'll let Jill talk about what's happening at the county level first then. Jill, you should be able to share a screen. 
Um, I'm having some technical difficulties as well, so I'm, I'm, I wish I had a screen to share. Um, I, I will um, make sure that I follow up with Britt, um, but I, I do know that um, several of the um, city commissioners are familiar with the work on the community health plan, um, which is our community's five-year strategic plan to um, address um, the health um, of the community utilizing a social determinants of health frame. Um, the uh, Douglas County has been the convener of the anti-poverty community health plan, um, which started in 2018 and runs through 2023, the end of this year. So we're um, rounding out the end of the five-year plan. Um, Douglas County is the convening entity of the anti-poverty community health plan, and we're one plank of a of that community health plan that um, behavioral health, which is also led by Douglas County, safe and affordable housing, which is led by the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority, and then um, healthy built environment, um, which is led, led by Livewell. Um, the anti-poverty community health plan um, came out of the work of the um, Douglas County um, Human Services Coalition, now the Coalition for Human Services, um, which is a collective of um, community agencies um, and um, collectively identified that anti-poverty community health plan um, and the three focus areas, one of which is the uh, is child care um, and early care and child care. Um, that was a key priority issue that was identified in the health um, community health assessment, the CHA, um, which informs the uh, CHIP. So CHAWs and CHIPs, um, the community health plan is the, um, the, the strategic plan that we're currently rounding out year five of. Um, children and child care was one of those five areas. And part of the work of doing that plan, of developing that plan was within the three focus areas of the anti-poverty community health plan. Again, child care, early education being one of them, along with jobs and de de decriminalization of poverty. Um, it, was, it was important in order to operationalize the plan that we find within, um, within the anti-poverty plan, convening entities or convening groups that could shepherd the work of the plan. So early care and education, um, very, um, forgive, the, forgive the pun, early on, um, that group organized um, in large part due to the leadership of some, some really key people. Um, uh, Kim, Kim Polson, um, who you're going to hear from later today, but also with a lot of support from folks like um, Britt and um, Hugh Carter with the Lawrence Chamber, and a lot of folks that are have been you know boots on the ground involved in the provision of early childcare um, as providers and champions and advocates um, way before we operationalized this plan. Um, that group met um, on a began meeting on a monthly basis um, shortly after our plan was approved. Um, um, and our plan was approved in January of 2021. It took us a little longer to get the plan um, to a place where we could all buy into it and feel like we could operationalize it. But um, the early care, um, child care group met has met consistently on a monthly basis. Um, and probably the best example of the work that that group has done is that um, what started out as a group that was um, convened and facilitated each month by Kim has, Kim Polson has now transitioned to some shared leadership um, um, with other within that organization, the Children's Community Center Project, um, but also within other organizations like Child Care Aware um, and Success by Six and others that regularly participate in that um, those monthly meetings. So, um, from the perspective of being the 
convener of the Anti-Poverty Community Health Plan, we see a lot of progress in the work of this particular area. There's a lot of energy. Um, there's a lot of folks that consistently show up to do the work. Um, and we know, based on some of the early um, conversations within the Community Health Plan Steering Committee, I know Commissioner Sellers has been a part of that. Um, to start looking at the issue areas that are within the next five-year community health plan. We know that child care is going to be, um, continue to be a focus, but I think, you know, as it, that focus will be building on a considerable amount of work that's been accomplished in the last few years of the current community health plan. Um, so I think you're going to hear about that progress tonight um, and all the opportunities that we have to build on it and to really think strategically in the next five-year community health plan. Um, so I'm happy to stand for any questions and, and excited for you all to hear about all the other work that's happening. Thank you, Jill. Do you have any questions? Any commissioners have any questions for Jill? Not right yet. Okay, we have another speaker. Yeah, I think I'll have Kim Polson come up and talk to you about what's happening on the local level. Thank you. Let's see if we can help. Yeah, Kurt, we may need a little help on uh, the slides as well. Mayor, I have a quick question I wanted to ask Jill um, since we're paused. Jill, with the work um, that was done with the anti-poverty group and now we have the community health board, will that work still be done outside of that space or when that plan expires, will there be an opportunity to bring that work into, the, into what's being done with the, the health plan? Can you just kind of outline that? Yeah, I, I think everything's kind of a, a fresh start in the next five-year plan, but I, it, it, you know, it wants to build on, it doesn't want to duplicate any efforts that are already in place, but I do think it's a fresh opportunity for um, new collaboratives or new partnerships to step into that leadership role um, or to be a part of um, the work moving forward. I think you know, the next version of the five-year plan um, always has an, is an opportunity to look a little different. Okay. So perhaps from a governance structure, what's being done in that space or the conveners of that space could, information is, is being spilled over into the steering committee that is driving the community health plan. Where am I saying it? It, sh it should be, you know, based okay. on my observation of the way that, you know, the, the Lawrence Douglas County Health Department has historically provided a lot of um, administrative support for the conveners of the um, community health plan to make sure that they're helping, um, they're keeping everybody up to date um, as we move forward and make progress. And I see that happening moving forward as well to um, make sure that we have as robust a process as possible. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Are you able to see my screen? Yes. Right. Okay, I'm Kim Polson. I'm the Executive Director of Community Children's Center, and I was charged tonight with providing a local perspective into the state of child care for Lawrence and Douglas County um, that can provide a little um, more specific insight to um, what Jackie Counts would present at the state level. So, first of all, is it working? Mm -hmm. 
We lost it. We lost it. I do not have the ability to move forward. There we go. Okay, so first of all, I wanted to give you a current perspective of the state of child care right now in Lawrence and Douglas County. I pulled this data mid-July. Um, we have up-to-date data available in a point of time slide shot from Child Care Aware um, of Kansas, and so we can keep up to date with what is happening in our community. Um, Mid-July, we are looking at, we had a little over 7,000 children under the age of six in our county. About 5,600 of those have all parents in the labor force, meaning there is some kind of care that needs to happen outside of the home for those children. We also know that for infants, it is very difficult to find the spot you need, when you need it, where you need it. Because for right now, there is, for every one spot, there are up to 10 children who could fill that spot in our community. We also know that non-traditional hours are very difficult to come by in terms of childcare in our community. There are seven licensed facilities that provide some evening hours, but only two that provide care on weekends or two that provide overnight care, and those are home-based facilities so the numbers are really relatively low for the potential demand for those individuals who are working second and third shifts. We also know that the extent to the desired capacity meets our potential demand is 45 percent. So if you think about that we have 45 out of 100 children who could have a child care spot. The other 55 percent we are in need of increasing child care capacity. So for overall, we need over 3,000 spots to meet the potential demand in our community. And that is the way things are today. We know things are evolving and changing, um, and that need is only going to increase as we move forward. We also want to talk about what it means to pay for child care and to work in child care in our community. Right now, the average annual cost of care for an infant is over $13,000. That is more than the cost of fees and tuition for a year at the University of Kansas. Keep in mind that families do not have time nor capacity to save for child care the way they save 18 years for college education. We know that sometimes means parents have to choose lower quality or unlicensed care so it is more affordable. We also know it forces parents to make difficult choices where one of them might need to leave the workforce in order to care for their child. What we know is parents cannot pay more. Now for the hourly wage of a childcare worker in Douglas County, it's between $12 and $13 an hour for caring for our children. What that also means, childcare workers live in poverty alongside many of the families that they serve. They don't typically receive benefits, health insurance, retirement. It means they're unable to save for their future and they may be forced to leave the field for different employment in order to make up for the, lo the lower wages in the child care profession. We know they can't afford to make any less. Ooh. All right, I'm not moving. There we go. 
Now, what is happening at the state level right now is amazing, and you will hear about some of that. What we know is there is the greatest opportunity for increasing childcare capacity than there has been in a long time, and I will tell you we have some things to thank COVID for um, because it's directly a result of the COVID pandemic. Part of the state SPARC dollars were for childcare capacity acceleration, so to boost Childcare capacity, new slots in communities um, with dollars through the SPARC program at the state. So the state in June awarded $43.5 million across the state to create new, high quality, affordable childcare in our state. Lawrence and Douglas County, we were a part of that. We received 3.4 million of those dollars to implement innovative strategies in our community. For example, Hilltop West, the new childcare facility that will be happening um, related to Hilltop that will care for infants, received 2.5 million in capital funds to assist with the building of their facility. That facility has a capacity of 138 children, 10 classrooms, significant addition to the capacity in our community. <clears throat> Success by six and um, Brown Like Me, $63,000 for innovative work to recruit individuals of color, retain those childcare employees through higher wages and targeted population support. For example, Brown Like Me is a childcare facility, licensed facility, new in our community that grew out of the community health plan to reduce poverty with specific supports related to families of color who are going through birth, prenatal birth, and then into childcare, creating that pathway for support for them. We also received at Community Children's Center um, 878,000 um, operational dollars as well as innovative dollars. There was a tag on this Child Care Capacity Accelerator grant where you could apply to be an innovation community. And Douglas County had two applications for that that both were received. So we are innovating in our community and the state is watching us do that. There are only 16 innovation communities in the state. Our traditional, our um, specific areas of focus where we are looking to increase capacity include non-traditional hours, which as we saw in the statistics, not typically available in our community, as well as looking like, as, as well as looking at how do we infuse new dollars into the childcare infrastructure, and that being through public-private funding partnerships by engaging our um, employers, our businesses, and looking at this as an economic development issue. As Jill was mentioning, the Early Care and Education work group that got together to really take a look at how do we create systemic change in our own community related to our child, early childhood infrastructure developed a specifically Douglas County plan as to how to approach this. And that includes looking at the entire 
early childhood community, which includes our early childhood professionals. We want to be supporting families, multi-generational families, in accessing high-quality, affordable care through child care and education. We want to be supporting our early childhood professionals with supports, um, shared services. We just became the Shared Services Network Hub for a 16-county area in uh, Northeast Kansas, where we will take on some of the administrative burdens to allow child care professionals to do what they do best and to support that entrepreneurial spirit that comes with starting a child care facility. We also know that we need to reach our families with resources as early as possible. The earlier in a lifespan when we reach children and families who are in need of those supports, the longer they have access to those, the better the trajectory and the outcomes. So a family resource center that wraps around the entire early childhood community, those professionals included. Creating an early childhood community center that serves as a hub and a home base for outreach um, was the way in which we, we found we could pull these things together and create a model that when proven, can be scaled to other parts of our county, other parts of our state. And we also don't want to forget that actually we've all got to be involved in this with the family-friendly workplace. Every one of us can be doing something to improve child care capacity, child care quality, and the quality of life in our community. Um, one of the things that was on your agenda earlier related to um, the second and final reading was a special use permit for 346 Main Street where this early childhood community center will be this first iteration. We already know one building does not solve this problem. What we need to do is we need to find a way in which to work together, create spaces that create ripples that improve quality capacity across our community. And that is what we're working towards on Main Street. In that particular facility, we are having seven infant toddler rooms, up to 138 children per day with non-traditional hours, evenings, nights, weekends. Child care spots for employees whose employers want to engage in the model with us, for our community, and for those who are receiving child care subsidies from the state. Sliding scale tuition to make child care more equitable and affordable. Drop in and occasional care, acknowledging that everyone needs access to high quality care, whether that is once a week or every day. Early Childhood Business Incubator and Apprenticeship. We're working with Peasley Tech to create an apprenticeship program that will allow individuals to have that experience of running a small childcare facility in our building so when they are ready to step out and do that in their own home or in their own facility, they have the experience not only from the childcare perspective but also the business perspective. We walk alongside them and provide them ongoing support as a provider in our community. The Family Resource Center wraps around the entire community. All of our families in Douglas County with children under the age five, five and under um, accessing those services as early as possible in a place where they typically will be anyway, dropping off their child, picking up their child from childcare. We'll also have a clothing closet and a food pantry, a community meeting space. This is a community building that we are working on. We want this to be open, welcoming to all of our early childhood families in our community. And we also have an indoor community play space where if any of you have had young children, 
uh, it's sometimes difficult to find that space to run off that energy. So we're creating a space where families want to be, and in that moment, they begin to realize what other services are available to them, building that trust within this building in particular. Just some visuals of what uh, the building at 346 Main Street will look like. Um, making sure that we create a space that is as accessible, low barrier as possible on our community facing side and as high quality as it can be on our childcare facility side. That's all I have. If we want, is Jackie here? I am. Okay, we can turn it over to Jackie. I'm not sure how. Hi, Hi, Jackie. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. Let's see if I can get this. Can get it back. Okay, Kurt, we might need a little more help. It's nice to see the cursor has a mind of its own. <laughs> it's the third one down, the third presentation down. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. It is the first presentation. Actually, sorry again. It's the second <laughs> presentation. I can't other see. <laughs> I can't see these little icons and what they're saying here. So it's the one that is the state presentation. There you go. For sure. Uh, <laughs> we think so. We think so. Yeah. Keep your fingers there. We go. Crossed. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Jackie Counts. I live at 904 Pennsylvania. But tonight I am pleased to um, come as the director of the Center for Public Partnerships and Research at KU. And I'm going to give an update on what is going on on the state level. Um, I'm part of the state implementation team for the All In for Kansas Kids plan. And I could talk for about two hours, but I, told, I was told I got 10 minutes. Um, so I'm going to give you a very high overview but I also have handouts for everybody and um, some of our work over the past several years. Um, so just a little bit of background about the Kansas Children's Cabinet and Trust Fund. It was established in 1980 as the first um, organization in the U.S. to deal with um, or to represent the state in child abuse and neglect prevention. And then in 1999, it got expanded to be a Kansas Children's Cabinet and Trust Fund. And at that time, it was embedded in statute that it would be the organization that oversaw the tobacco master settlement dollars and also advised the governor's office on early childhood systems building, evaluation, and conducted needs assessments. So that's a little bit of background on that. And also, um, annually, the Tobacco Master Settlement dollars that go to early childhood programs is about 55 to 57 million, as reference. Um, so we did do a needs assessment in uh, 2019. Um, we got over 6,000 voices. I'm not going to go through all of that because I think you probably, um, you're probably very familiar with how um, the gaps in early childhood show up at the community level. Um, we found, though, that there were two central messages. The first one is that it really matters in the state where you live. And the second one is that Kansas families are struggling too much to meet 
basic needs. Um, key findings that shows up in a variety of ways on accessibility. Um, it's there aren't equitable services available across the state. It's really hard for families to navigate, and it is a connect-the-dot approach. Um, there is a lot of willingness to collaborate, but there are some structural issues at the state level that make it difficult to blend and braid funds. Um, and there are some communities that have to piece together anywhere from like six to 12 grants to build their states, or to build their early childhood system at the local level. Um, so it's really difficult to navigate. Um, but in all of that, there are a lot of bright spots. Um, and I think Douglas County and um, what is going on in the um, Children's Learning Center is certainly one of those. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit now about the overall state plan. It is called the Kansas All-In for Kansas Kids Plan. And the main focus of it, though, is really to look at how we can do some things at the state level that make it easier um, for communities to be able to build their own system. So working on a lot of state level coordination, um, also really trying to provide some support for public-private partnerships. Um, we really believe that that the best solutions come from local communities and those that are closest to the problem. Um, so really striving for how we can make it easier um, to not have to duplicate so many different um, you know, every time you have an agency that is applying for funding, you're duplicating services on the admin level for applying for it, doing the evaluations, data collection, and all of that. Um, so the overall governance structure is that um, the, it starts with the governor, and then there is the Kansas Children's Cabinet and Trust Fund um, is convening a state director's team that oversees four state agencies. So it's the Kansas Children's Cabinet, um, Kansas Department of Health and Environment, Kansas State Department of Education, and Kansas Department of Children and Families. So those are the four agencies that um, have the bulk of funding at the state level. The issue is, though, that there's not one organization that has the best interest of the child at heart um, and is speaking and making decisions solely on that. So I'm going to hold on to that nugget um, for a little bit later on. Um, so Kim talked about this a little bit, but what we're really striving for is an early childhood mixed delivery system with the child at the middle and services that wrap around the family. And as I mentioned a minute ago, um, that's really spread out at the state level because those funds and um, the jurisdiction to oversee those funds um, is placed in four different agencies. And so what that means is sometimes conflicting and sometimes really cumbersome regulations um, to navigate navigate at the local level. Um, so here is just a list of some of the things that we're doing at the state to try and make things a little bit better. Um, the first one is the statewide ASQ. That stands for Ages and Stages. Um, anybody who has kids, surely you have answered the question if, the, if they can pick up a Cheerio. Um, statewide now, um, they're doing about, they're administering about 35,000 of the screening tools a year. Um, so we're really trying again to um, get that across the state and then have the appropriate services if a child is found to be delayed in development. 
We've also done a number of preschool development grants. Um, most of those have gone to the local level. A lot of building um, local workforces, putting together um, some opportunities to be able to provide shared services, as Kim mentioned. Um, offer off-hours care. That's a huge issue in the state. Um, and statewide, we're lacking about 85,000 slots to meet the needs of Kansans. Um, we're also um, providing services, or it's a 1-800-CHILDREN. It is a statewide call line, call line, so anybody who is looking for any type of service for their family can go to 1-800-CHILDREN, and then the back end to that is Find Help, and it lists all the services um, that are available in a community. We're also working on a statewide integrated data system, um, so we would be able to answer questions about who is getting services and at what point those services lead to better outcome for kids. As it is right now, there's no way to link all that and to be able to answer those questions with any type of confidence. Um, and I think the biggest thing that um, I'm really excited about is we're doing a lot of support for child care workers and child care professionals, um, such as developing a statewide workforce registry, a career pathway so people can see what is needed to enter the field and to progress and grow in it, as well as like what are the basic core competencies that you need to know to be good at your job. Um, and then these are just some other investments um, that we're doing right now. Child care investments, we um, just ran a one eight, or sorry, that's the previous thing, um, child care accelerator grants. And we're able to give out about $40 million in grants to support local communities um, building and basically accelerating or increasing the number of child care slots in their communities. Um, and there is going to be another opportunity coming out in the next two weeks, um, which will be another 38 million. And that one's gonna be a broader um, funding source of looking at family, or not family resource centers, but um, places, and it's for construction, and it will support um, organizations that offer health screenings or some type of um, health entree, education, and job or employment searches in one location. So. Um, Stay tuned for that. Um, one other thing that is of note and that you might want to follow is the new task force. This was um, the first executive order that Governor Kelly um, put into effect um, at the beginning of her term. It's 2301, and that is the establishment of a task force to address and to set up a new agency that whose sole purpose is uh, the best interest of the child. And so right now, um, we just finished a nine community listening tour, um, had about 500 people come and talk about the issues, which you're all very familiar with. Um, child care workers don't get paid enough. They get paid about $10.30 an hour. Um, people are leaving the field and um, it's difficult to recruit. Um, and also just the um, issues between licensing and regulations. Um, 
it's difficult to navigate. And so there is a statewide review of regulations um, that KDHE is undertaking right now to try and address some of those and to, to clean it up a little bit so the process is easier. Um, so on Thursday of this week, the task force is sharing the results of the nine community listening tour. Um, it's at 1 p.m. if you want to tune into that um, and, and follow that um, progress. Um, so I was asked to share some other models that are going on around the state. Um, one is a, a shared services model. Um, I know we already have, or we're setting that up in Douglas County. The other one is, um, and it's based on Michigan's TRICARE model. And in that model, it is a shared um, payment for childcare between the employer, um, the state, and the parent. So it's distributing the number of payers into the system and with the overall hope of reducing the cost for families but increasing wages for the childcare um, professionals. Um, and then there are lots of instances of where there's shared space between employers and um, some communities. And in particular, there is one in um, Colby and there is a hospital that is sharing um, child care with the rest of the community. Um, and then another one I wanted to call your attention to is um, it's a processing or a packaging plant in um, Sugar Creek in the southeast area of the state. And they are donating the land. Um, and then they're also paying for an on-site center to operate it and reserving 25% of the slots for employees and for, the, um, for Sugar Creek, but the rest is open to the community. So I think those types of models where you can get public, private, um, and designated, designating a portion, um, but the rest really needs to be also available to the community. Um, I have other models that I could share if you are interested in more. Um, so I just wanted to share a few actions that you can take now. One is to sign up for the newsletter. Um, this comes out every week and it talks about um, grants that are available. It talks about trainings and supports for the workforce. Um, and so it, it's just a nice little uh, thing to get in your mailbox at the beginning of the week. Um, there are also things that um, you could consider for embedding childcare in infrastructure um, discussions at the city level. Um, considering childcare as public benefit um, is one of the first things. And also prioritizing childcare in housing developments. Um, there's a model in Finney County of where they're requiring new apartment buildings to designate at least one unit um, that might go towards in-home childcare. Um, so really, really cool model. Um, and also require businesses to be family friendly. Um, it is a great recruiting tool and there are some resources, be happy to share those of what it takes to get designated for that. Um, and then another thing is to um, consider what are policy decisions today? What is the effect that that's gonna have on the next generation? And what trade-offs do we need to make today to be able to ensure that they have a brighter future than it looks like they might right now?
Um, also, the Kansas Children's Cabinet and Trust Fund is very interested on hearing about bright spots and what works for your community. Um, really like to support those types of things, share with others, and um, continue to do better by our communities. So that is really all I have, but thank you for the opportunity and thanks for all your work on supporting childcare. Thank you, thank you, Jackie. That ends our formal presentations. If you'd like, we can open it up for questions or additional discussion with the commissioners. Yeah, that'd be great, bring them on up. <laughs> Any questions for any of the presenters? From the commission I just had a quick one uh, I think on that next to last slide in Douglas County I think they were mentioning public-private uh, partnerships uh, exploring those I wonder how how far that might have gotten because I think I've heard something about that as well um, you know I know especially on the east side of our our town we have uh, some manufacturing and uh, um, things of that sort and I know they work all kinds of hours so I know the, how that could really help them out yeah, actually, it began um, last summer as we were going to visit with our largest employers, particularly those that had non-traditional hours, asking what their need was and how we could work together um, to create a private-public partnership that benefits the employer and the employee. Um, and we have, we're inviting our business sector to engage and invest in the model with us. Um, and in some capacities, that may look like um, a capital gift. Some of those, it may look like sponsoring childcare um, classrooms or specific spots for their employees who they know will need infant toddler care to in order to return to the workforce. So we've had our first major partner step up as an early adopter with Amar Garage, um, who will be announcing that formally tomorrow. Um, with with a $25,000 capital gift to not only get the, the get the building up and running but also that when we open there will be two child care spots there for employees of those who need access to that part of that is a broader vision of let's prove the model at 346 Main Street so then we can take that model and make it appropriate for our business parks, for Venture Park, for other areas where we can have multiple businesses engage in a childcare community, an early childhood community center in their business park that not one single business has to assume all the risk, all the financial, um, and and does not have to run it. I guarantee you, most of our businesses do not want to be in the business of also running a childcare facility. So if we have the opportunity to get those businesses speaking with each other and with us, that we can then create smaller iterations of what's happening at 346 Main Street around our community and strategically placed to fill those areas where there are special needs such as non-traditional hours or where there's a lack of childcare right now. So we are talking with not only our largest employers, but all employers who want to engage in working towards a more family-friendly workplace. And um, we'll tell you that the cost-benefit is there. Typically, it takes six to nine months in order to uh, get someone up to speed after someone has left your line, your organization. And we're asking for a small investment to help us do that, and significantly less than what it costs to bring on and onboard a new employee. Thank you. Thank you. 
Any other questions? Hey, Kim, real quick. Um, can you explain, can you go into a little bit of detail about the apprenticeship program with your partnership with Peasley Tech? I know you didn't know what role Peasley would play in that, and I didn't hear anything about the business aspect. So if you could share a little bit on that, that'd be great. Yeah, we're actually just getting started with our apprenticeship program, um, working together with Peasley Tech, where they have a child development associates program that is available through their entity, where they would do their coursework through Peasley Tech and then have practical experiences at 346 Main Street and potentially other facilities around our community to engage in different types of care, different ages of care, to have that broadest experience that they can and the highest quality that they can. The other benefit is that when they're doing that th through the apprenticeship program, they are also paid and that's at $16 an hour because one thing we know is Peasley Tech is about creating jobs that family, that individuals can make a living at and part of that is elevating wages. It's kind of been a hesitant to, to offer something with early childhood in our communities related to apprenticeship when the wages are so low, but we know we've got to invest in it in order to elevate it and increase the wages for our providers. So, there, so there's, an, there's the educational component piece. Mm -hmm. As far as the business piece, where are they capturing that? Um, Peasley Tech is not particularly working with the business piece with us. The Chamber of Commerce is directly involved with us in speaking with our business community and our employers. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? Jackie, no. I had a couple of questions for you. On the, the, the model, I think it was Cali County, the TriShare model, where it's a mixture of business, community, and employer. Do you know what the family's portion of that, like what percentage of they're responsible for? It's my understanding that it's a third, a third, a third. Okay. And then I know there, there was discussion with the task force about the aspect of disseminating information. So how local elected officials, local government, whether it's city, municipal, or county, can be more in tune to information or receive information coming down from the state. Has there been, I know there was discussions, and I was part of one of the discussions, but where has that, is that going to be part of some of the feedback on Thursday, or where did any of that information land with the task force as far as reconciling? How do we ensure statewide information that impacts local policy or could ex help expand local policy, that relationship? Well, um, that's not, it's probably not gonna be front and center, to be perfectly honest, at the task force meeting on right. Thursday because it's about setting up the new agency. Right. Um, I think on um, getting the information out, the, the first step I really think is um, tuning into that newsletter. Um, but I would be really open and would welcome an opportunity to um, talk with you about like what level, who does that go to, who should we try and engage with, um, and also should we try and set up some type of roundtable for you know city officials and organize something like that. Like what's the right level of information information to get that type of trickle down to the right people. So that's an answer with an ask, Commissioner Sellers. I accept that. <laughs> Any other questions? 
If not, we'll open it up to public comment. Any public comment on this item? not go to zoom there's none on zoom here all right bring it back to the commission for any discussion on this I had another quick question I know we we kind of talked about it talked at it with the early care and education workforce health care and benefits so this might be a Jackie question where has the state, as far as the needs assessment and information gathering and sense making, where are we at on reconciling that? Well, we did some, um, and I can get the exact figure. I don't have that on my at my um, fingertips right now, but. Um, it's interesting that the need for health insurance wasn't as great as we thought. And part of it was because it seemed like a lot of people um, had a partner who was able to provide health insurance, um, which in and of itself I think is really telling um, because it doesn't, um, doesn't enable us to be able to recruit for people who might be really good at providing childcare services. I mean, in order to be able to afford to do it, you have to be partnered with somebody who already has health insurance. So we've explored a few things, um, like seeing if we could get childcare to be part of the state insurance pool. Um, we haven't gotten super far with that, but it's still on the table. Um, there's also a partnership with Blue, Cro Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas for childcare providers to be able to um, tap into that service, which I can also um, get the information. I think it's Blue Anthem. Um, I can get that as well. Okay. Thank you. Mayor, I got one more question okay. for our Crickopedia. Is Jeff on? From Planning and Development. Is Jeff on? He, he's on vacation. Oh. Well. No, he's here. Jeff, you talk about Jeff Prick. Jeff's here. You're not logging on from vacation, are you? No, I'm not on vacation. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Okay. Real quick, um, we're currently, we're one of the few communities that, for licensing for home-based care, we, we do have provisions that, I don't want to say limit, but can you explain the impact of someone who is wanting to do center-based care as opposed to who might need a permit to build something or to take over a commercial space? as it relates to someone who would want to do in-home care? Sure, so the land development code has different uh, designations for, for daycares. There's a daycare A, daycare B, and then a daycare center. And so it's part of the process. Daycare A and B is effectively uh, is a home-based home daycare, depending upon if the owner lives in the structure or does not live in the structure. And then the daycare center is a different one. It's kind of what you would, it sounds exactly like it, you would think it to be. And the way the development code currently has it is that is a special use in some districts and it is a permitted use in other districts, depending upon the criteria in the code. And so a lot of the times daycare A and daycare B can be accessory uses for, for a home occupation or, or an homeowner. And the daycare centers tend to be a little bit more in your 
commercial or your more intense districts that we tend to have in the code. I hope I hope I was getting to that the question there, Commissioner. Right, and so, but there, as far as access and cost prohibitive, there's there's no additional cost layer to that. Kind of like what we saw in Wichita, where they removed their code from they removed their daycare code because there was an additional fee for the home piece that wasn't for the center. And I might be, don't let me provide misinformation, but I know they took that piece out of their, they removed any code as it related to providing <laughs> care in a home as that needed to be noted. Cause they felt like it was doing that created a barrier to individuals being able to provide care. So I didn't know if, if this could be, if this could be perceived as creating a, a point of access, an inability to have access to one individual to provide home-based care than, some, than another person. Let me double check. I don't believe there is a lot of difference in the way, um, actually, let me take that back. Uh, daycare A is used as an accessory use in our code. Okay. Daycare class B, is a special use throughout the residential districts in the code. And the daycare center is typically also a special use. So there would be a special use permit process that would come in for daycare B and daycare center as part of that. And that's also something we're looking at with the code update is do we have those special uses in the right spot or are they, are they you know, not in alignment on those things? So we're still looking at that as part of the code process. But right now, so daycare B and daycare center would be special uses in the residential districts and more. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Any other thoughts? I'll just say thanks um, for the presentation. Thanks for all your work. Um, you know, I appreciate the, I was on the Ballard Center board for a long time and you know, that was really considered nonprofit work and now we consider it economic development work to be in childcare. And I think that's a, a, an important um, change in, in the way we we, not only the state, um, our local chamber, um, and our county and, and the city look at, at child care, and, and I think that is a very important step. I mean, early education makes a difference on all levels, and so I appreciate the efforts, appreciate the update, and and I do, um, I wrote that down as our code committee, um, that yes, we should continue to look at that as part of the code um, update. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I, I do want to thank um, everybody for presenting today. Uh, from what I've historically, um, having kind of followed this throughout the years, we've made a lot of progress just hearing what I've heard tonight. I'm really impressed with what I'm hearing. Um, I find really important is the public-private partnerships that are occurring. Those are so important in our community to continue to be successful in so many avenues. Economic development is a big one, public-private partnerships, and this definitely hits it on the, on the head. So I, I really appreciate the work and, and, and the progress we're making. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, also want to thank everybody for the presentation today, and uh, and the, especially on ch early childcare services and childcare services in general. Uh, considering the the amount of economic development that will be happening in a very short time, uh, it's a very present uh, conversation. So, um, and I look forward to learning more information about it. So, thank you. And I would just also like to thank the county's partnership um, in the anti-poverty work. Um, uh, 
of course they take the lead in a lot of things and with the the community health report um very important but i appreciate their um leadership and their um being able to use their influence to get all the partners together and make and make real changes and solve real problems i appreciate that thank you thank you thank you echo that um a couple of things you know, I love these things. Uh, I know we didn't get to, to speak to this, and I know we were talking about the idea of desired and capacity. Um, and I know we've had it in other iterations of you know how many slots we need based on how many slots are desired um, from a childcare perspective, but also from the perspective of the family. You know, I know on the first slide that Kim had it talked about the number of family, the number of. Uh, families of children under six where both parents were in the workforce. And so as much as we look at innovations around incentives, public-private partnerships with subsidizing dollars and funding, and I want us to continue to move that because we do have to have that. That's one, one tool of many tools that we need to yield. I would love for us, and I say us collectively as municipalities and counties, to really push um, reclaiming our ability to work with a public-private partnership as it relates to family paid leave. We're preempted by that by state law. So what we're saying by not fighting for that is that when a baby is born, parents need to find childcare and go back to work. That's almost like a mandate. That's not a choice. And so just like we want to give families the choice to have home-based care or center-based care, families should have the choice through their partnership with their employer to stay home for those eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks with their, their itty-bitty so that they can build that relationship and not feel like the focus is getting back to the workforce. Workforce is three different things here. The future workforce and the child, the workforce of the parent, and the workforce of those in the early care and education ecosystem. So we gotta look at this from all levels. So I do want us to kind of challenge the state because there's a lot of things that Topeka want us, want is requiring of us, but we need to require them in order for this to be equitable and to make it work. Um, I love hearing about the different projects that are popping up around town. There is value in early care districts. So there is reports out that talks about the value of creating districts, just like we have, like we have feeder schools, to making sure that we create equity in transportation and geographic location of childcare. So don't want us to get too heavy and concentrating childcare on one particular aspect of our community when we're not being mindful that it needs to be spread out so that we can start feeding children into, into our schools and, and, and increasing our population from that capacity. Um, outside of that, I, you know, I like that we do have under prosperity economic security, um, where we list enhanced childcare options at all price levels, you know, we may need to tease that out and ask what does that look like and how do we track that. So I know that we're putting, we're couching childcare under PES2, but how do we speak to that to know if we're actually moving the needle? So that's something that I would, you know, where we've, we've put a lot of money into things, we then need to be able to make sure that we are enhancing childcare options at all price levels and how we're doing that and what policy points are we implementing for that. But, you know, 
this was a past life of mine. It stays a past life. It stays in my life. Um, I'm always going to be a strong advocate for early care and education because it's the best of both worlds. Of the, it incorporates the family, the community, and the employer, and it's it's everything that we need to do. So thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Jill. And thank you, Brett, for this. All right. We'll move on then. The regular agenda items. Item number one, consider adopting on first reading ordinance number 101003, declaring restrictions or bans on natural hair or protective hairstyles violate the intent and spirit of the Lawrence, Kansas anti-discrimination regulations set forth in chapter 10 of the city code. Yes, uh, good afternoon, commissioners. Um, I'll try to be brief with this item tonight, as I know we have several folks here present tonight who look forward to speaking towards this item. But essentially what's been asked of you all tonight is to consider adopting on first reading ordinance number 10003, declaring that restrictions or bans on natural hair or protective hairstyles violate the intent and spirit of Lawrence, Kansas, anti-discrimination regulations set forth in chapter 10 of the city code. And just to provide a little bit of background to this um, item, and before I do it, I do want to um, acknowledge that this morning there was a slight modification to the proposed ordinance draft in section 10-102-28. Uh, there was just the uh, elimination of two to three words, so nothing overly substantial, but I just wanted to highlight that if anybody's looking at uh, a language draft from yesterday, for an example. Um, but as it relates to some of the background related to this, um, the founder of Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet, Michelle Watley, was invited to a Human Relations Commission meeting back in February of this year. And at that meeting, she was able to provide a uh, very robust presentation surrounding um, language pertaining to the Crown Act and its importance. Uh, after her presentation at that meeting, the Human Relations Commission was in support of what she recommended and suggested that the city adopt an ordinance to sort of prevent or um, eradicate anti-discrimination surrounding people hairstyles and natural hairstyles. Um, then she was able to come back again at the next Human Relations Commission meeting and provide some draft language for the city to move forward and providing a uh, draft language related to this ordinance that you all have here tonight. Um, and so with that being said, there are several people who want to um, speak to this item tonight, including the founder of Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet, Michelle Watley, who was able to meet with city staff several times to kind of provide some guidance based on her um, area of expertise in this area, as well as we have the president, or not the chairperson of the Human Relations Commission, uh, Katie Barnett is here tonight. And I believe also we have uh, the president of NAACP, Ursula Burns, who also, or, I'm sorry, Ursula Minor, who also want to uh, speak to this side in addition to some other people. So um, with that being said, uh, Michelle Wiley, if you can provide your presentation. Excuse me, Mayor, can I jump in real quick? Um, the acoustics in this place are kind of interesting. So um, when you're whispering out there in the crowd, we can actually hear it up here. So uh, if you could kind of table that while other people are speaking, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, Excuse me. Thank you, Dr. Muhammad, for the introduction. Uh, Mayor Larson and City of Lawrence Commissioners, thank you again for the platform to speak about uh, what we believe is an important issue. Again, my name is Michelle Watley, and I'm the founder of Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet. We're a nonpartisan nonprofit working to amplify the voices and power of black women uh, with a supporter base of black women of more than 2,000 between the state of Kansas and Missouri. We hope to amplify their voices and power so they can be better uh, and more effective advocates on behalf of the issues that matter to them. I come to this work with a background in political advocacy and campaigning, and I've had the pleasure and opportunity to work on efforts advocacy-wide 
from the presidential level all the way down to local and statewide ballot initiatives. In my time in this work, I've worked with Senator Bernie Sanders in his 2016 campaign to run for president, raising the profile of a senator who had been largely unheard of before the 2016 campaign as a national political director. I was a consultant on the statewide ballot initiative in Missouri to get the minimum wage passed, which passed overwhelmingly in the state of Missouri. Helped the city of Kansas City pass a general obligation bond as a senior consultant of more than $800 million the largest bond to ever be passed in the city of Kansas City, creating economic opportunities for black people in Kansas City and others. And lastly, serving as a consultant for the campaign for DA Fonnie Willis, who has just indicted our former president on crimes today. I have had the pleasure and opportunity to be in the back rooms of major advocacy efforts and what I have found in my time is no matter who I worked for across the political spectrum, there was one common thread. The efforts and contributions of black women and black people not having the attention or the reverence that they deserve. Black women and black men have led civil rights movements. Black women in particular in recent movements have led the Black Lives Matter movement. But the experiences of black women with police brutality have gone unheard. Black women started the Me Too movement, but their experiences with sexual harassment and abuse often go unnoticed. Black trans women are one of the largest group of women that are, um, that have the highest homicide rates and physical abuse rates. But in the movement for LGBTQ rights, their stories often go unnoticed or unheard. In noticing this common thread, I decided to start Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet because black women advocate. Black women don't need to be empowered. We step in. But we need to make sure that when our efforts are brought forth, that the fruit of our work is fruit we too get to enjoy and bear. I've taken what I've learned to support black women in advocating for issues that are important to them, and today I speak before you to advocate for the Crown Act. The Crown Act seeks to create a respectful and open world for natural hair. And if this act is passed, what you'll find is it creates greater access and opportunity to black men and women who have been challenged with loopholes in current laws that allow for racial discrimination based on hair. Different places of workplace accommodations or other public places and spaces typically have rules that guide grooming policies and policies around professionalism. In those rules, there may be direct bans on certain hairstyles, locks, braids, twists, afros. On the surface, those rules seem like they apply to everybody because it's a rule in the handbook that does apply to everybody. But what you find is the only group impacted by these rules are black people and other people of color because black people and other people of color are the ones that typically wear locks, braids, and twists or have the naturally tightly coiled hair that is often banned from the workplace. Although this just seems like an issue of hair on the surface, it has deeper roots and implications when these bans are on the books. There's an economic impact. A number of black people have had the experience of being turned away from a job, 
being fired from a job, losing a job, being suspended from a job for wearing these hairstyles. Yesterday we held a press conference and Byron got up and told a story about being um, employed, hired and employed and told he was highly eligible and talented to work for the role, but before he could actually be hired, he had to cut his locks. This man had to cut his hair in order to be hired. His hair did not make a difference in whether he was able to actually do the job or not, but he was forced to cut his hair in order to get the job. A report by the Kansas Chamber of Commerce in 2021, Challenge to Compete, illustrates that there is a talent drain that the entire state is having to deal with. We are losing talent to competitive states and cities in the Midwest region. And one of the recommendations that they provided to dealing with this talent drain is to send a clear message to the workforce that as a state, as cities, as municipalities, we value diversity and encourage talent from all walks of life. A number of the competitive states in the Midwest region and cities have passed the Crown Act. States as far south as Texas have passed the Crown Act. No shade on Texas. But if Texas can see the economic benefits of making the statement that they value diversity and talent as they are, surely we can do the same here. It also comes with a health impact. The processes and techniques used to straighten hair have been found to be physically harmful in a number of levels. Most recently, a report by the National Institute of Health found that the common straightening method that black women use, chemical relaxers, if used on a regular basis, which is just two to four times a year, could result in an increase of 80% of cancers in the uterine and, and excuse me, hormone areas. Black women are being exposed to cancer at an increased rate of 80% by using products like chemical relaxers to keep and maintain jobs and to fit into professional standards that were never made to fit them or to view them as professional. <clears throat> Add on to the health and safety concerns, the cost that black women and black people bear for maintaining their straight hair to fit into the workplace and fit these standards and you now have greater obstacles. Black women spend seven to nine times more on hair straightening products than any other group in the United States. That ends up being more than a billion dollars a year. Mind you, there are no chemical relaxer plants that I'm aware of in Kansas, and the manufacturers of these products are not bringing those dollars back into the Kansas economy. The costs, the health concerns, being turned away from jobs, losing jobs, and dwindling the talent workforce, we have a problem bringing in talent so that our small businesses and our economy can thrive, could all be hopefully eradicated with the passage of the Crown Act. As the city works to achieve its mission of being a city where everyone feels welcome and being a city where everyone can enjoy living here, passing the Crown Act could be a powerful tool in achieving that mission. So at this point, I want to thank you all again for your time. I've emailed a number of the commissioners and reached out, uh, and some of you have been able to engage and reach back out. I appreciate that engagement. I also want to pinpoint and thank Commissioner Amber Sellers. 
as the first African-American on the commission, we are getting to see the embodiment of Shirley Chisholm's uh, legacy in her work. Shirley Chisholm, by the way, was the first black woman to run for president on a major party ticket. She was also the first black woman to run for Congress and win. But Shirley Chisholm was also an immigrant to the United States. She was an educational teacher. She taught secondary school. Uh, in her free time, she would go and uh, take census surveys to make sure her community was counted. Advocacy shows up in many ways, and Commissioner Sellers, your representation and your being on the council is the embodiment of what advocacy looks like and what can happen when black women lead. I'd also like to thank the different city apartments that we've worked with and commissions, the Human Relations Commission, uh, Dr. Muhammad's office, the city manager, the city attorney. You all have really shown what it looks like when the community and elected officials and city departments work together to get good policy passed. It's been a pleasure working with you. We hope to work with you on future endeavors. Last but not least, we want to thank all of the partners who have put in the work for this uh, initiative, Black 30, Curology, uh, Juneteenth Lawrence, Loud Light, and Black Lawrence, and so many others. And last but not least, uh, Wendy Green. She is a professor of law and director of the Center for Law Policy and Social Action at Drexel University. She is one of the original architects of the Crown Act bill language, uh, the language that was passed in California and in New York, and that has been introduced at the congressional level. So with that, I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you very much. Any questions? Thank you. Thank you. And I also think uh, Chairperson uh, Katie Barnett also had a few uh, words she'd like to share as well. Okay. Okay, we're going to shift, I guess. Um, if uh, President of NAACP, um, I'm sorry, I keep uh, Ursula Minor would like to speak. <laughs> He's referring to my maiden name, Ursula Barnes Minor. So. My apologies. <laughs> a lot of people know me more by Ursula Barnes. I was born and raised in Lawrence. Um, my name is Ursula Minor. I'm president of Lawrence Branch NAACP in Lawrence. I have been for many years. And I know Lawrence has a lot of um, great things going on. And I think this is a huge thing that Lawrence needs to do. Hair discrimination has real, measurable, social, economic impact with black people's hair continuing to be policed and used to deter professional advancement. In a society in which hair has historically been one of the many determining factors of a person's race, hair discrimination targeting hairstyles associated with race is racial discrimination. The Lawrence Branch NAACP reaffirms its stand and opposes the discriminatory practices associated with the denial of employment and educational opportunities based on hair texture. The Lawrence Branch NAACP would like to see the City Commission pass the Crown Act. Thank you. Thank you, Ursula. Anybody else there? Dr. Muhammad, we're good? Okay, we'll open it up for um, public comment at this time. Any public comment on this item? Good after, I guess, e good evening. 
Um, my name is Brooklyn Mosley. I live in East Lawrence, and I'm here as a proponent on passing the Crown Act so that Lawrence can be a true, inclusive, and welcoming community. Like many women who look like me, my hair has been dyed, fried, and laid to the side, but over the, uh, but over the last few years, I've shifted to protective and natural styles like corn rolls, micro braids, uh, and afro, and I, I stand here with my flyest style, uh, these locks that are maintained by Miss Janine Coulter at Hidden's Jewel Salon here in Lawrence, Kansas. Like a true elder millennial, I've been raging against the machine uh, for quite some time, and, uh, and that's how I feel about my hair. However, uh, it is a common topic uh, amongst my family and friends. When uh, any time that they change their hair, they put a protective style, they put braids in, or just wear their hair how it naturally grows from their head. Um, how it naturally grows from their head. There's a constant concern and worrying that if their hair was going to be accepted at their workplace or school, um, sorry, excuse me, a workplace or school, um, and this true exists anxiety exists in my community with people who look like me. Uh, the commission has an opportunity, um, oh, sorry, this, is, has, this has been a form of discrimination that has been accepted or ignored for far too long. This commission has an opportunity to say that we are truly the city that has rose from the ashes 160 years ago and to, uh, to remain so that Lawrence could remain free. I'm asking you to stand with, black and, with the black and brown community and approve the Crown Act. Thank you. Thank you, Brooklyn. Any other public comment on this item from the audience? Hello, good evening. My name is Stacy Nell. I'm the executive director of the Kansas African American Affairs Commission. I provided testimony last month, but I thought I would come back this month in person just to ever so briefly join with Shirley's Kitchen Cabinet in supporting having this ordinance passed. I currently was in, or well, currently recently was in Newton, Kansas on a different thing, a Main Street business economic development topic. And the question was put to me from some other small communities out in Western Kansas, what can we do to attract and keep our black small business owners? And one of the things that came to my mind was this idea that having an ordinance like this or having this being actually officially stated that we are not going to discriminate based on natural hair or hairstyles, which I am rocking myself today, actually would send a very strong message to people as they're either looking to move into Kansas, and we all know that there are lots of business opportunities coming to Kansas, or as our children decide whether or not they're going to stay in Kansas or not. So just ever so briefly, I did want to just continue to lend my support to, to encourage Lawrence to pass the Crown Act on this local level. Thank you. Thank you. Any other public comment from the room? Oh. Hi, everybody. Garrett Elliott Menace. <clears throat> um, I am a part of the No SB 180 group, which we've actually changed now to officially the Trans Lawrence Coalition called TLC. Our chairwoman, Jamie Miller, will be giving a formal statement via Zoom here momentarily. However, I just wanted to come out and make a point real quick that you did just pass Ordinance 9999, which was, you know, essentially banning discrimination. I find that. There should definitely be a unanimous vote um, to support the Crown Act as, uh, you know, I lost my train of thought. But you know what I'm saying, what okay. I'm getting at. Thank you. Thank you. Any yeah, other public comment? We got one more. Here we go. Hi, Katie Barnett. I'm the chair of the Human Relations Commission. 
Um, my comments tonight come from a deep regret that this monocultural beauty standards that could be holding back bright young professionals in our community. Professionalism comes from skill, knowledge, and experience, not hair. Um, hair standards and policies barely even try to maintain the subliminal tests that were um, given to previous ethnic and race-based uh, communities. And they were used to conveniently discriminate, all while breathlessly trying to say that these policies are not discrimination. And I think that's what's happening here. Um, we are strongest when our children are meaningfully participating in activities. And oftentimes, these policies prevent that. Um, when our adults and professionals are allowed to ascend based on their skill and knowledge, not their hair. Um, and the state of Kansas, as mentioned, I think, earlier, has really failed to ensure the people in our community are judged by the quality of their work and professionalism um, and not their hair. It's up to us in Lawrence to stop this discrimination, even if it's just in our community. Um, even if folks think that hair-based discrimination or policies is minimal or minimally um, rampant in our community, uh, the only thing that's stopping more policies from coming is an ordinance like this. Um, so this issue is important to me, even though it does not affect me. Um, and it's important because this discrimination impacts so many folks and families in our community. Um, so I just wanted to support the Crown Act. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Hello, my name is Amy Hilmer, South Lawrence. Um, I'll be brief because we know that witnessing discrimination isn't the same as living it. I'm just here in support of my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers. Um, when I first moved to Lawrence, I noticed that people, especially white folks, were very proud of an abolitionist history. However, um, that pride can look really cheap and misplaced when we're not actively working to right wrongs or fight racial equality in the present day. Um, so definitely want to stand in support and ask you to pass this Crown Act. Thank you. Hello, good evening. My name is Dr. Caleb Stevens. I'm here as a representative of Black Lives Matter LFK, and I just wanted to urge you to support this ordinance as it's extremely important um, to all the marginalized and oppressed individuals in our community, as well as the surrounding areas. I think that um, if we're going to be present for people, we need to be present for all the people, and this is a great step moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. Any other public comment from the room? If not, we'll go to Zoom. Jamie Miller. Uh, good evening. I am Jamie Miller with Trans Lawrence Coalition. Um, I'm here to say that the Trans Lawrence Coalition stands in solidarity with our citizens' siblings being affected by oppression and discrimination based on their hairstyle, color, and texture. We urge the City Commission to enact Ordinance 10003 to protect our siblings. As a community, we must stand up and speak out against discriminatory policies and practices whenever and wherever they are present. In part, Chapter 10 of the Code of the City of Lawrence 
declares the policy of the city of Lawrence to assure equal opportunity and encouragement for every person, regardless of race, sex, religion, color, national origin, age, ancestry, sexual orientation, disability, or gender identity, to secure and hold, without discrimination, employment in any field of work or labor for which the person is otherwise properly qualified. This can only be true when all of our citizens are able to live freely, according to their own choices, and without threats, coercion, intimidation, and pressure to conform to certain and ambiguous societal norms. In 2023, it is far beyond the time for our communities to start believing in and practicing freedom for all people, rather than merely moving the focus of, our, of hate for those with differing characteristics. Trans Lawrence Coalition stands in solidarity with our siblings being affected by oppression and discrimination, and therefore we urge the City Commission to enact Ordinance 1003 to protect our siblings. Thank you. Thank you. Alyssa Besner. Thank you. Uh, my name is Alyssa Besner, and I'm a community organizer in Lawrence. I'm here to show support for the Crown Act, and I also believe that it will be instrumental in protecting people of color from hair discrimination in their daily lives, and especially in the workplace. I know the Commission is aware that this ordinance is incredibly important to the mental health and the prosperous lives, and not to mention the employment and education opportunities of people of color in the world that we live in, as it is still massively behind on making reparations for its Depression. I sincerely hope that we'll see a unanimous decision in favor of adopting the Crown Act. Thank you. Thank you. Brianna Bell. Good evening. My name is Brianna Bell, co-founder of Prestige Hair Studio and also founder of Curology Curl Education. I would like to express my wholehearted support for the passage of the Crown Act in the city of Lawrence, Kansas. For the past five years, my salon has proudly served the diverse community of Lawrence. We pride ourselves in catering to all hair types, textures, promoting the acceptance and celebration of natural beauty. Yet I have personally witnessed the impact of societal norms and expectations that force many of my clients to alter their natural hair to conform to certain standards. Statistics from 2023 Cram's study shows that these experiences are not isolated. Every two out of three black women feel compelled to change their hair for a job, for a job interview. And over, over 45, 44% of black women feel the need to straighten their hair to increase their chances of success. These figures are stark illustrations of the pressures to conform to particular aesthetics that are not naturally their own. Moreover, this issue does not solely affect adults. From a young age, children and teens also feel the need to change their natural hair to fit in, which leads to a lack of confidence and a sense of not belonging. In a Dove survey, 100% of black elementary school girls in predominantly white schools have reported their experience of black discrimination by the age of 10. This is a social norm that must be changed and challenged. I have personally experienced the emotional toll of this pressure to conform, and it is a difficult and demoralizing decision to make this transformation of one's natural appearance to feel accepted in the workplace, school, and other professional establishments. The stress this place on individuals, especially from the black community, can negatively impact their mental health and overall well-being. 
the Crown Act represents a significant step towards a more inclusive and accepting society. It stands for the right of every individual to embrace their natural hair without fear of discrimination and prejudice. As a city, we have the responsibility to, res to protect this right and to set a positive example to the rest of the state. I urge the Lawrence City Commission to lead the way in this vital issue. Let us stand together as a community against hair discrimination and any other form of discrimination. Let us pass the Crown Act in Lawrence and send a loud and clear message that we value diversity and individuality. Thank you. Thank you. Alex Kimball-Williams. Hey, good, good evening. Um, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the community speak to the Crown Act and huge thanks to those that were working directly with City Legal to make it happen. I know personally that that's a lot of work. Um, so uh, huge thanks to all the core organizers. But I just wanted to speak up that Black Lawrence is in full support of uh, the Crown Act. Um, when Black Lawrence uh, was founded about five years ago, one of our main tenants was uh, in promoting fair booking and fair pay and fair opportunities for Black artists and writers working in Lawrence. Um, hey, baby. Um, and uh, so that was that was a big part of why we started our organization. And 100% um, of our members are black and are impacted by the lack of an ordinance in our local area. And um, so we just wanted to speak up in support of this. Um, a Crown Act would mean that people, including myself, who have experienced hiring or the basis of their hair would have protections or at least know that this is, a, this is an environment that does not encourage that discrimination. Um, it would also help a lot of people like myself who did experience scalp damage and scalp pain from you know repeated relaxers over the course of, it must have been 15 years. Wow. I've never added it up. Um, but that's one reason why I keep my hair short is because I do have significant scalp pain from all the hair relaxers I did predominantly at home, which I don't recommend. I did a lot of them box relaxers. Hey, and I actually, one of the reasons I stopped, there's many reasons why I stopped, but one of the reasons was that um, some of the relaxer got on my left eye and I could not see out of it for a few hours. And it made me very scared. And so these are the experiences that people are undergoing because they were told in their places of school, places of, of work, um, that they needed to conform. And so the, an ordinance like this would help prevent those kinds of accidents, which always happen. A lot of us have, have been burned or you know made a mistake with the relaxer. Um, and then I'm really excited about the core organizers' intent to uh, continue pursuing the state so that we could um, have a positive impact on our, um, on our students as well, black students. Um, looking at my notes with the babies. Hey. Um, let's see. I think that was all that I have on my notes. Um, but I just really appreciate uh, you taking a moment to listen, and I'll pass it off. Thank you, Alex. Macy Webb. Hi. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes, okay. Um, it, it is very unfortunate that the state has not found this in an important enough kind of protection to, to be passed under law on a larger scale. Um, but I'm glad to be able to support it here in Lawrence, Kansas, as a member of the community and as a representative of Trans Lawrence Coalition. Uh, I'm here to affirm that our solidarity in support of passing the Crown Act in this town is based in our knowledge that securing protections for the most oppressed members of society benefits our community and everyone in it. 
Historically, trans women of color are the demographic here in the U.S., are that demographic here in the U.S., alongside an absolute blind spot on behalf of the LGBTQ plus community in almost every case. Um, having listened to the stories told to me by trans women of color in this town, Lawrence is by no means an exception to that unfortunate statistic. And creating protections for our citizens to exist as they are and as they choose to exist and present themselves allies Trans Lawrence Coalition with um, the Crown Act um, by our own internal organizational goals and direct support of passing the Crown Act here and across Kansas. Um, I hope that this ordinance has brought you the opportunity to reflect on the compelling stories and evidence of how prevalent this kind of discrimination is here in Lawrence. And it prompts you to pass this ordinance as soon as possible, even today, and also perhaps causes you to bring that perspective into future deliberations when it comes to protections for minority classes of citizens in this community. Thank you. Thank you. Donovan Dillon. Hi, everybody. My, my name is Donovan Dillon, um, and I've lived in Lawrence most of my life. Um, and I'm also starting my junior year at KU. Um, and I've also just been in the organizing and activism space since about 14. Um, and I've done a lot of work at the state and local level in regards to bridging the gaps between public uh, elected officials and the policy that they implement, and really working between the intersections of those three things in order to bring about um, a more accepted norm of civic engagement um, and just a more connected community in general. Um, and that's what a lot of my work as an organizer revolves around, especially in regards to historically disenfranchised communities, including young people, black people, and the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and I could spend my time telling you about the black lived experience around hair and discrimination, but I know for a majority white commission that that's something you will never truly understand. But despite that, um, I I think there is something that you do have the power to do um, and what you should do as a representative for all members of the Lawrence community, and that is listen, observe, and implement policy with the powers that you've been given by, uh, by us to create policy that supports and empowers the black community. And by passing this ordinance, um, you're submitting, uh, supporting the black community through legitimate policy that affects our daily lives. The way that we wake up and move through the world from the day we're born to the day we die, and not just offering support through your words or a quote to the media or campaign promises, which, as we're here today, have done nothing to really move us forward um, in regards to truly supporting the black community. You also have the power to show the black community and the countless people who have spent so much time working on this ordinance um, that local government and government in general, which has historically been a place where we are left out of, pushed away from, and that our involvement and efforts haven't truly been cherished, um, that when we as people in a community show up, that you will not only listen to us, but you will use your effort, time, and resources as commissioners to act. Um, and with that, I urge you guys to pass the crown act here thank you thank you donovan that's all the comments mayor right bring it back to the commission this time any other discussion quick question mm -hmm. michelle i have a quick quick question i know um in the conversations and in the public comments we've heard about workplace accommodations and we also heard about children in schools and i want to make sure that the public 
understands this is in relationship to chapter 10 and what that means and what that work looks like as it relates to the state of Kansas and the Crown Act with our schools. Thank you for the question, Commissioner Sellers. Um, we see cases of racial discrimination based on here across all public sectors, the educational sector, workplace, and employment. However, because the city of Lawrence doesn't have jurisdiction or does not govern uh, public schools, this policy being presented today would adhere to uh, policies related to Chapter 10 and the public accommodation spaces, uh, employment uh, spaces, and others that your laws um, essentially govern. We are, as an organization, have for the last few years worked at the state level both in Kansas and Missouri to get the Crown Act passed so that it provides comprehensive coverage across public spaces including education. Um, and we will be working on those bills again next legislative session. I think that's all I have. Okay, thank you. Any discussion on this? You know, Mayor, I want to take a point of personal privilege to thank Michelle and Katie and Ursula and everyone who came out tonight to speak um, and to support and to elevate the importance of what the Crown Act could mean to our community. Um, I think there's a couple of words that come to mind um, because of the brevity of tonight for the black community and as a black woman. And I hear, you know, words of, I think of trauma, hope, anxiety, and joy, and that is a weird juxtaposition of words. But I talk about the trauma as you hear, have you heard from others this evening about the ongoing mental health aspect that often doesn't, that is often not recognized or understood, and to know that to be a black woman and has been once a child and the balance of nature and nurture and knowing that within your home, your crown is beautiful no matter what it looks like, but to, to be challenged in the world and be told that it's not good enough or for it to be relegated to an animal or things of that nature. And I told the story about being told as a six-year-old that my hair reminded someone of, of their pet dog's hair. And that that is a story I'm never gonna forget. And there's countless of other stories of in workplace settings of being told, oh, I don't like your hair like that. Why would you do that? Or, oh, your hair is very kinky. It looks like, oh, you know, it looks like animal hair. Or you hear conversations of individuals interjecting about the value and worth of your hair, how much you spend on it. Um, why would someone do something like that? Oh, and so I think oftentimes those are seen in the black community as backing the compliments, but they truly have an emotional, they're an emotional drain. And so to struggle with just being present in one's own natural self is something that I have experienced my whole entire life and that I don't wish on anyone. And I've had to navigate that space. I've chemically treated my hair. I've had the burns that Alex talked about. Um, I may have been a little bit better at putting my relaxers in as Alex, but that was something that I did because I didn't, the words that my parents told me, 
that I was enough as I was. I didn't feel like that when I left out the door. It didn't feel like that when I left to go to college. And it didn't feel like that when I decided to venture out into my professional career. And I still face it to this day. I've had individuals email and criticize my hair. That's not what a commissioner, oh, the way you wear your hair. It's so unprofessional. That's a dog whistle. And it hurts. It continues to hurt. Because when will I ever be enough? And why does it matter what my hair looks like? Period. But there's joy. Because things such as passing the Crown Act allows us to see that joy, to allow young little girls and boys, black little girls and black little boys, to see the joy in just being who they are and having to be able to drown out the world telling them that they're not enough showing up as they are. And to celebrate that, that history, that culture, that is what makes us who we are. And it's not a us versus them. It's celebrating me and my lineage and my history. I had this conversation with Representative Christina Haswood when she talked about the importance of hair in the indigenous community. And that when an elder passes on, that they cut their hair. But to also know that there's been indigenous youth that have had to cut their hair because they wear the young boys that wear long braids. This is culture to us. This is us showing the world our history and celebrating where we come from, who we are. And so the Crown Act has that value to it. It allows us to wear our crown in all of its wonderful glory. And so I, don't, I wanna give that hope. I wanna take that anxiety away so that we can truly be a community that believes that we all can strive and thrive together. We cannot say that we're trying to make, create positive outcomes if we have barriers still in place that mitigate those outcomes coming to fruition. This is one way we can do it in more ways than many of us in this room right now can probably understand and conceptualize. But trust and believe, this is huge. This is huge for our community. This is huge for our state. This is huge for individuals who, are, who, who live here, who are trying to thrive and survive here, that they can balance and feel that they can take their, their natured self, their nurtured self, sorry, and bring it out into the community unapologetically. So I'm, I'm excited for tonight. I'm just thankful for this opportunity. Any other discussion? Uh, yeah. Um, I echo uh, Commissioner um, Sellers' words. Uh, unfortunately, I won't be able to take advantage of <laughs> that act anymore, but uh, once upon a time, I might have, and I'm more than glad to ensure that others can. So. Anything else? I think this has been a... Um, long time coming should have been come to us sooner um, again it goes back to our community members just want to live their lives and not be troubled or be judged on how they look and how they wear their hair in this situation this just makes so much sense so I'm supporting it obviously 
That's it. I have nothing to add. I if not, <laughs> if not, I'll ask for a motion. I move that we adopt on first reading. Second. I want to finish. Yeah. Ordinance number 10 0 0 0 10 0 Is that? Yep. We're good. Okay. I have a first and a second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Passes 5 to 0. Okay. We're going to take a 10 minute break and we'll be back in 10 minutes. All right, we're back. We're on to item number two of our regular agenda. Consider approving a request to rezone Z-23-00017 approximately 1.73 acres from IBP district to RS-3-PD residential with planned development overlaying. District located at 1717 Research Park Drive, submitted by Alan Balot, Architects, on behalf of 1217Y LLC, property owner of record, adopt on first reading ordinance number 9997. Commissioners need to disclose ex parte communications if this item is pulled for discussion, which obviously it has been. Any ex parte? Um, I spoke to Amy Phelan. Um, and mainly about just things on the agenda. She's a neighbor in the neighborhood. I talked briefly um, with Roger Johnson just about. Oh, sorry. I talked with Amy Phelan, um, who's a neighbor, mainly about things that are in the letter that she submitted. And I talked to Roger Johnson briefly about um, the procedure once he was pulled off the consent agenda. Uh, yeah, I just uh, received the emails. I believe we all did from. Uh, Neighbor, uh, neighbors uh, neighboring the project, and I think that's it. Okay. Any others? I, yeah, I got. I received the same correspondence, and I, I did get a, an, another text from Amy Phelan, but it was all the same things that were in the correspondence. And I received correspondences as well, and I had a conversation with Mr. Johnson about lot sizes. And I received all the correspondences, I think that most did, and I did not have a outside discussion with any of them. Thank you. All right. You ready? Okay. Good evening, commissioners. Catherine Week. Uh, I'm the planner here to walk you through this item this evening. Let me see if I can. And Catherine, you're presenting both of these items. I am, yes. Right? I will present both. Yes. I will present both items. They are linked to applications, so I'll present both in one uh, brief. Uh, PowerPoint for you. Okay, again, as Mayor Larson mentioned, this is uh, a rezoning application to a PD overlay district, and the proposed district is RS3 PD, which is a planned development. Um, it's a two-part application. All rezonings that are proposing PD overlay districts are required to do a preliminary development plan and then a final development plan if those items are approved. Um, could you speak into the mic a little bit more? Yeah. Sorry. You can pull, you can raise the podium too. Okay. So this is a, ma uh, a map showing exactly where uh, 
we are talking about for this particular rezoning, it is at the northwest corner of Research Park Drive and West 18th Street. Um, the surrounding zoning in the area. This is a, well, the parcel itself is the southeast corner of an IBP uh, zoning district, and that is the district it's proposed to be changed. Um, surrounding zoning in the area is RS10, predominantly to the west, some RS7 to the south. There is some GPI or public institution um, zoning to the south of that residential area, and then some light industrial or IL over by Wakarusa. The surrounding land use in the areas are similar to their zoning designations. The yellow indicates that it's uh, primarily single dwelling residential. Brown is multi-dwelling residential, which there is a multi-dwelling uh, structure just to the north of this parcel. Blue is the institutional zoning to the south of that residential area. The pale purple is the commercial and medium purple would be industrial. That just gives you the kind of context of the land use in the area. So just as of note, um, and we let planning commissioners know this as well, there is public notice requirements for all of our application process. Notice sign is posted by the applicant. The newspaper is published by staff. Written notice is mailed uh, by staff. All correspondence, um, as of the time this slide was made, was uploaded as of yesterday. I believe you got additional correspondence added to the packet today, um, and that is all current. So we have all of our communications in. We like to present these review slides um, to let uh, interested parties in the audience and for a refresher for any commissioners that need them, what staff is looking at and what the commission is looking at when they're reviewing these types of applications. When uh, looking at a rezoning application request, we look at what are called the golden factors. This is a list of those golden factors. They are um, outlined in the staff report in detail. Um, staff has to find, you know, that. Uh, the proposal is meeting these golden factors or the predominance of these golden factors. Things like the conformance with the comprehensive plan, the zoning in, of nearby properties in the area, if there are any sector plans or area plans, this particular property does not have that, so that uh, conformance with the comprehensive plan is that guiding structure or guiding uh, document um, when there are no area plans whether it's suitable for the uses to which it has been um, zoned currently um, and the length of time that the property has been vacant. And then any extent to which approving the rezoning will detrimentally affect uh, nearby properties and particular to this request uh, with a preliminary development plan, there is a set outline of items that we look at um, to determine whether or not it rises to the level of detrimental um, and whether mitigating factors um, are needed to um, offset those uh, potential detriments. And then if there's any gain, um, if any, to public health, safety, or welfare, um, if you were to deny the application as compared to that hardship that might be imposed to the property owner. All rezoning applications are required to have what's uh, called a concept plan. Um, in this case, the preliminary development plan, since it's joint application, um, acts as that concept plan. This is the preliminary development plan that's been uh, submitted with uh, this rezoning application. It shows you the layout. Um, one of the benefits of doing a PD overlay um, is that it offers some flexibility in how you access the property, whether or not you can have private streets or they're all public streets, um, some lot size um, modifications that are available uh, to a preliminary development plan, um, and 
uh, relevant to that common open space, um, there are those modifications are outlined in uh, the code sections relevant to preliminary development plans. We'll talk about those in a minute. And then this is also just a concept of what those particular dwelling units might look like. Um, these are proposed to be single detached garage, uh, two-story, uh, smaller uh, single detached dwelling units. And then a little information on the specifics of the preliminary development plan itself, um, since we're presenting these together. Uh, the total area for the plan is 1.73 acres. Um, there is no proposed right-of-way uh, proposed with this. All of the right-of-way is in existence adjacent to the property. And then because they're doing the preliminary development plan, they are utilizing some private access roads within the property itself. So there's no need for uh, additional right-of-way to be dedicated. They're proposing 14 uh, residential lots with this particular development. Um, it should be noted that RS3 is one of our uh, medium uh, density uh, residential designations, and the 14 lots does fall within um, that designation. If you do the math on the area of the property, um, the property could accommodate more than that, um, but with this particular development and the confines of this particular parcel, um, this is uh, what this applicant has proposed as the maximum number of lots for this PD. They're also asking for several modifications um, as permitted um, in 2701 for plan developments. Specific to uh, density, they are allowed to ask for a modification request for lot sizes. Typically in RS3 district, uh, the, or the underlying RS3, the minimum lot size is 3,000 square feet. In this particular modification request, they are asking for a range of lot sizes, but the smallest would be 2,414 square feet, um, and they would range up to uh, 4,000 uh, square feet in size. And then there's also a modification option for residential uses in a plan development to modify uh, the required number of parking. In this particular case, this modification request is for an overage. Um, they are only required to have two parking spaces per dwelling unit, which would give them 28. They're proposing an extra 14 spaces um, at the ends of some of the access drives to kind of relieve uh, on-street parking um, in that area. So there's the modification request for the parking number as well. And then again, just as a reminder for discussion points, what staff and the commissions are looking at um, for preliminary development plan review is again, whether that preliminary development plan um, is consistent with that comprehensive plan, if the preliminary de development plan is consistent with the specific plan development standards of section 2801, those include the uh, existence and nature of that common open space requirement, uh, whether or not uh, there's adequacy amount of function of common open space in terms of the densities and dwelling types that are proposed in the plan, whether that preliminary development plan makes adequate provisions for public services um, and can control the vehicular traffic to and from the site, and furthers the amenities of light, air, recreation, and enjoyment. So the idea with the preliminary de development plan is you are providing um, some amenities um, where you might have some flexibility for design. And then whether that de preliminary development plan will measurably and adversely impact 
development or conservation of the nearby neighborhoods. Um, and those specific criteria outlined in that uh, PD review are A, whether or not it's doubling uh, the traffic load to the area, B, uh, proposing housing types or building heights or massings that are not compatible with the established neighborhood pattern, or C, increasing, increasing that residential density uh, by 34% or more. And those are considered items that could be detrimental to the neighborhood. And then whether or not any of those potential impacts have been mitigated to the uh, maximum practical extent. And the last one applies to whether or not it's a phased um, preliminary development plan. This one is not phased. Um, so um, there's no need for conditions proposed to protect um, as far as phasing goes. But there will be di probably discussion about the HOA as far as private roads uh, go. This is a slide that uh, staff provided just to give you uh, the visual element of what is considered common open space versus private space. The open areas adjacent to the individual dwelling units would be considered your normal private yard or private space um, for those dwelling units. The shaded light blue area is what could potentially be utilized for um, common open space. Um, some of that will be uh, further honed in on in the final development plan that would follow a preliminary development plan. Uh, but just for the general purposes of area that's allotted, the required amount is 20% of the total lot area, which would equate to just over 15,000 square feet. Um, and at least 50% of that uh, would be dedicated to some form of recreational open space. And that can be anything like uh, gazebos, picnic areas, picnic tables, ball throwing areas, or whatever that might be. And just to give you um, scaling, um, this corner here in the, what would be the northwest corner, that rectangle, not including the detention pond proposed area, is approximately 5,000 feet. So there is the potential for at least 7,500 uh, feet, plus or minus, for that common open space. So there are multiple voting motions that you, after your discussion, because this is a linked application, um, so I'll talk about the voting motions. There would be a, a motion and a vote for the rezoning itself, and then there would be a motion and a vote for the preliminary development plan itself. And then each of the modification requests would require a separate motion and vote. Um, staff uh, recommended approval with the review. Uh, Planning Commission also voted uh, to recommend approval, and that was a vote of nine to zero. On the PDP uh, recommendation, staff also recommended approval uh, after their review, and the Planning Commission also voted uh, with another nine to zero vote uh, for approval. On the modifications, uh, the Planning Commission did a vote to approve. Uh, one vote on the parking uh, number was nine to zero, and then the Planning Commission voted eight to one uh, on the modification to the lot size relative to the RS3 uh, zoning district. And I should also note that um, as far as you're um, concerned, uh, you have the option obviously to approve, to modify or approve with conditions or to deny the, uh, the application. If you were to uh, decide you can't get to an approval or a denial, 
um, you could remand the application back to the Planning Commission. Um, and if that were the case where you were unable to reach a decision, you would need written uh, explanation as to what uh, was preventing you from making that decision so the Planning Commission could discuss that further and bring it back to you. And then if you were to vote counter or contrary to the Planning Commission's decision, that would require a two-thirds uh, vote of the commission itself. And I think that has covered everything. If you have questions or clarifications, I would be happy to provide them. Could you go over that last bit about um, the, the vote? Yes. Um, just the part about if it's contrary to the Planning Commission. Mm -hmm. So if uh, you vote contrary to the Planning Commission's recommendation, um, it requires a two-thirds vote okay. uh, of the commissioners before us tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Any questions? Um, I have one. Uh, this layout looks very pretty, pretty familiar and pretty similar. It, did we have something like this on the east part of town, maybe in Brook Creek? Um, the layout is not quite the same, but there is uh, the only other, well, the only current uh, RS3 zoning that we have um, is, yes, over by Brook Creek. Um, it's at the intersection of, I believe, uh, Boleyn and 19th Street. Um, it's a very similar request um, that is also approximately the same area in land, is approximately the same number of lots as a result, um, and it also was a request to rezone from IBP, although there was also a section of IG, so it was split zoning on that parcel, um, to the RS3 um, district. The difference on that one is it's a straight RS3 zoning, whereas this one is an RS3 with a PD overlay which offers, again, some flexibility for the applicants and some protections for the neighborhood because it's not as easy to change later. They would have to re revise the de development plan if they wanted to change. Gotcha. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Um, I, I understand that the, sorry if you could pull it up just so that I could be one of the, one of the layout. Which one would you like? Any one of you want. <laughs> um, so I see which one, I, I think I see which ones would be private roads. Oh. Um, oh. I'm going to go back to the concept. There we go. Oh, okay. Um, I'm always particular about this, um, private roads are taken care of by the HOA and the city generally does not take them over um, in the event of the collapse of an HOA or? And that's typically the case. However, the one of the reasons why um, private roads are required to meet city standards is so that we have access for our sanitation and um, our uh, fire apparatus. And also if for some reason in the future um, there were to be a request to the city commission to take over those roads, they are suitable to city standards. And then I, I maybe can't read this particular map, um, but I, we're always worried about connectivity to other neighborhoods in terms of uh, bikeability and walkability. Um, and normally you'd be required to have sidewalks Mm -hmm. on both sides, et cetera, et cetera? Mm -hmm. So we do have sidewalk on both sides. There is existing sidewalk along the perimeter of the properties there, and there are two connection points that are being offered. So there's a connection point of sidewalk that's out to Research Park Drive, and then they're also proposing that connection point in kind of in the center of the lot to the south there on West 18th Street. Yep. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Any other questions? I've got a question. Could, is there somebody that can speak to the detention pond and how its capacity um, was designed? I don't know if we have anybody on MSO um, with us today. That detention pond um, would be part of that final development in the public improvement plans. Um, those plans have been submitted and they are currently in review for the, they're submitted with the preliminary development plan. They don't have to be approved until prior to the approval of the final development plan. So they're still kind of in review. What's the typical retention quantity that is, how is it designed to? I can't even answer that. I'm not an engineering expert, so I wouldn't be able to answer that question. Is there anybody from MSO on? Can you stop sharing? Oh, yes, I can stop sharing. Absolutely. There we go. I see Melissa. Do we have anybody from MSO that can talk about the stormwater detention pond? Mayor, I don't I don't want to speak for Melissa, but I don't see anybody from our engineering staff um, on the call right now. Okay. Okay, any other questions? Um, and I just wanted to piggyback on that as well. Um, once this process is cleared, there will be a traffic study as well? So that traffic study, yes, is in review. It was submitted with the preliminary development plan. Um, so they have to do all of the studies that are relevant um, that you also see when we do site plans. The traffic study, drainage study, downstream sanitary sewer, all of those have to be submitted and reviewed and approved. Okay, thanks. Any other questions? Do we, is the applicant gonna say a few words? All right. I'm Alan Balot. I'm the architect for this project. Um, we prepare to have this approved tonight uh, in a consent agenda. Somebody pulled it off the agenda so we don't have any comment right now. We can answer your questions later. Okay, thanks. Any questions? Any other questions? I have one. Can you come up and talk about that detention pond? Yeah, our detention pond was designed for the, this was previously a zone for another project we were gonna do before COVID. So the detention pond was engineered and designed for that project, which really had more density than this. Okay. So is it, it, is it designed so that it just captures the runoff from that complex or that property? Right. Right. The people to the north have their own detention pond. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Okay, um, and I know you. there's been an indication there's gonna be an HOA. Yeah, we have and an HOA for the Hope Complex, snow removal, street maintenance, sidewalk maintenance, lawns. You know, this is, my intention is to be a 55 and older community. We take care of everything for everybody. Okay. It's, this is not a rental community. This is, this is not what I do. 
Thank you. Thanks. Any questions for the applicant? And I, I believe, uh, I just want to confirm on that HOA, I think you were, from what I saw in the planning commission meeting, you were giving it a jump start just so that you didn't have to, uh, um, you know, charge the residents right away, kind of right. an ability to build up. You know, our HOAs is, is managed by, normally there's one person in Lawrence that does also, Melissa. So what we do is we pay for it until everything is full. And then at that point, we have a reserve in our account that everybody starts with. I don't think it's fair to settle these people with nothing when they, when they very first start. Gotcha. All right. Thank you. I have a little statement. Can I read this? Yeah, go right ahead. You're the applicant. Okay. Uh, anyway, I want to thank you for allowing me to speak this evening. I am Roger Johnson, the owner and development of the ground located at 18th and Research Drive. This project being presented this evening was to achieve several goals. <clears throat> I have tried before to bring a small infill retirement community to Lawrence. It was turned down not because it didn't meet the requirements of the city planners or Horizon 2040. It was turned down due to the neighbors' disapproval and lack of knowledge of how it would have helped the water issues they have fought for decades and continue to fight to this day. I know this project is needed. Just a few years, a few years ago, the city of Lawrence proclaimed it wanted to attract retirees to the community. The last years of my mother's life, she wanted to live in an area just like this or the other project I had proposed. There's nothing like this in the Lawrence area that is single family homes geared toward the 55 plus community with full maintenance provided. Within this plan, I have addressed most of the neighborhood concerns. We have a single point entrance on an arterial street, which reduces the traffic flow into their neighborhood. We have the berms and landscaping they requested. We added extra parking available in the neighborhood so no one would have to park on the city streets. I think the two concerns that are left are the density and the issue of devaluation of, a of an aging neighborhood. Let me address density first. To meet the development costs, cost of construction, to make these homes affordable to the 55 plus market, this is a density that's probably required. Then as it concerns the devaluation of the homes, studies have been brought before to this commission in the past that these infill developments do not hurt the values of the surrounding structures. All this together tells us this project meets every requirement needed to meet city guidelines. This will be a small help to the local housing shortage. If this project is turned down tonight, I have several options that could happen. I could leave it zoned as it is and it will remain industrial property, or I will donate the land to a nonprofit organization. She will wait until the new development code is adopted and it will allow her to build more density or even apartment complex, which brings higher density, more traffic, and less restrictions. I have to come to this conclusion after working in the development real estate industry in this community for over half a century. I've become disenchanted with how the process has changed and now works. This will be the last residential project I will ever bring to this city commission. The decision made this, this evening will let the remaining few developers know if this city wants to grow for the betterment of the entire community or is this city commission bound to continue to listen to a few. I thank you for listening. Al and I will both answer questions with honest answers. Thank you. 
Padre, stay up there real quick. So in your in your letter, you talked about wanting to focus on development that's 55 plus. And I noticed that some of these various in lot sizes. Tell me about the layout of these, because when I see two story and I hear 55 plus, that's a little bit of cognitive dissonance in my, my head. So help, help me understand the different lot sizes, okay. justifying that with two, sure. wanting to justify two, two okay. stories. One, our plan showed two story on both. The bigger lots, we will do single story homes. The smaller lots, we, can, we have to do two stories. Our goal is to put the one, at least one bedroom on the first story of even the two-story homes. I think that, you know, it's been talked, is our density too high? Maybe it is, I don't know. I don't know the real answer to that. You know, I thought about, well, we could go down to 10 or 11 and we could get more single-story units. I don't wanna pay $20,000 and start over and come back again and with no assurances that this doesn't work. And that's why I'm pushing this tonight. I mean, if you could give me some kind of insurance that if we lower our density, I don't have to go through this whole process and get turned down. Any other questions? For the applicant or staff? If not, we'll uh, open it up for public comment. Thank you, Roger. When the city adopted uh, 2041, one of the goals is to provide infill housing you know, as opposed to going out in the urban areas and creating new housing. If you're going to have infill developing, it's not going to be like the word, the words that are already there. You can't have a million-dollar house on a, a lot in a million-dollar house. There's going to be some some uh, trades off. If this is what you want, then we have to go through with this. If it's not what you want, then let's change the goals of the 2020 plan and let's get rid of the. Uh, 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 infill development because so far I've been worked on four of these in the last about a year and only one of them has gone through. So infill development, depending on where you put it, doesn't necessarily mean infill development. So you might want to consider that in your anchor here. Thank you. Any other public comment on this item? I know we have several people here to speak or in support of the neighborhood, and thank you guys for being here this evening. So, okay, um, my name is Amy Phelan, Mayor Larson and City Commissioners. Thank you so much for allowing us to speak. We appreciate the time each of you take to serve our community. One thing that I've learned over the years is that so often there are multiple sides to issues as well as multiple ways to address these issues and opportunities. I believe when, we people, when people come together to make decisions that benefit all parties, we come to great results for this community. With that in mind, I want to speak to the development proposal and opportunity at 18th and Research Park Drive. 
My father was a residential developer, so I have seen firsthand the benefits in communities when neighbors and builders work together. This developer has put in a lot of time in, to work with us, and we appreciate it. In the documents to planning, they shared that they had reached out to the HOA in recent months to get feedback. However, that HOA represents about 13 homes on the pond and not the 25 homes closest to the proposal. I believe that was an honest misunderstanding. Ideally, we would take another month or two to work as a community with the developer to come up with a plan that is truly win-win with the feedback from the neighbors closest to the lot. Or perhaps the solution is in the suggestions made tonight, or in fact his own suggestion of reducing the density and allowing him to move forward and not spend another $20,000. Let's work together to reduce the density tonight. Several people have mentioned this development is trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, and those outside looking in might think residential is better than industrial, so let's pick that option regardless of the type of zoning or the exceptions that have to be made. However, I believe we can work together to not force a square peg and instead find the solution that benefits both the developer and the surrounding families. The area in which we live was originally zoned to be industrial, not residential. Over time, as builders bought lots, they would ask to rezone to residential. The result is homes right next to industrial. At some point, looking at rezoning the land on the west side of Research Park that's directly next to homes would have made sense in the area, especially as it became a neighborhood of families and not an office park. So, this request to change the zoning to residential is welcome. My only concern is the density. 14 homes on that small area will create additional traffic to an already dangerous 18th Street. The street was originally planned to be industrial, but now it is the home to families with young children to the west and business to the east. There's a lot of traffic right there at that intersection. In addition, additional traffic will create a huge safety issue. You talked about the density. They looked at the density that it would not be no more than... Um, 34% increasing density. For those homes right around there, it looks like closer to 50% if you look at the 24 homes nearest to it. So I'm not sure how they calculate that. In addition, there were several questions tonight that the engineering staff's not here to answer. So again, I think we move forward with residential, but not the higher density. It also sounds like that four of you would have to overturn this. That's something we were not made aware of, that if three of you vote against this policy tonight, that it still passes because the Planning Commission supported it. So again, please, please consider doing the right thing Fine. for Lawrence. Thank you. Other public comment on this item? I'll go. Hey guys, Douglas Shepard. I am the third house down from there. Um, we agree, it, it needs to be residential and, and we've got that right. I think it's a good plan and this is a good, um, good way to show that how a plan can get better. It was going to be these parking garages or storage lockers, now it's gonna be residential. We think that's right, but it is a density issue. And, and to what Amy's point, I have a four-year-old. When we built that home in 2012, uh, we didn't really think about those things, but now that we have him there and how fast people drive through there, you had 14 homes there. It's way more traffic, uh, It's and it is a safety issue. Uh, my next door neighbor has grandkids over there, people speed through there, but this is a good plan. It needs to be residential. It's just the density of it, I mean, if we're looking at RS5, RS7, RS10, RS3, it's just too many homes crammed into a small area. Um, the other thing I want to talk about, like once these are built, there's no going back. And I think a developer, I mean, RD, they, they have every right to build there, but it's, if we cram it in the way it is now, there is no going back. If there's 14 homes there, it's just gonna look, it's not going to be what is best for that area. I do agree, I think we all agree there needs to be more homes in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, I don't think the homes they have on there are the right idea. I mean, what 55-year-old wants to live in a two-story, three-story home? Uh, bedrooms, I mean, you don't want to see them crawling upstairs and whatnot, but 
getting the right type of homes there uh, in that area I think is really important. There is a housing shortage here in Lawrence, so it makes total sense. But from a safety concern, um, like I said, it wasn't really anything I thought of in 2012 when my wife and I built that home and now have a son there uh, and worrying about how fast people speed through there. And inevitably, that is going to be an issue with uh, more density and more people in that area. So again, I think the plan to make it residential is a smart move. It's just the density of it is, is way too much, and I think moving through this plan we can get to a better outcome where it can be residential uh it's just a smaller number of homes thank you thank you other public comment good evening my name is bill fox and i live in the foxfire subdivision nearby I'm very much in favor of transitioning to proposed development to residential. However, I'm very strongly opposed to the current plan that would place an unconscionable 14 homes on the lot. This density is not compatible with either of the surrounding developments, and it would also be a disservice to the adjacent elder care facility. The current proposal calls for two-story homes with only single-car garages, which is incongruent with the requirements of the surrounding neighborhoods. This density of development would cause unacceptable drainage and runoff problems for the neighboring properties, and it would pollute the nearby pond. Such dense housing at that spot would also further exacerbate an already difficult traffic situation one block east at 18th and Wakarusa, which has been the site of several traffic mishaps in recent years. While it is understandable the city, the city of Lawrence has pursued infill development, It is imperative that that development be responsible, well thought out development that fits with the local neighborhoods, does not pose a risk to public safety or the environment, and does not constitute a threat to the peace and tranquility of the elder care facility next door. In this case, it would steer the city to approve residential de development of lots no smaller than 7,000 square feet, with houses requiring at least a two-car gar garage and having similar deed restrictions as the surrounding homes. I strongly urge you to disapprove the developer's request to place 1,400 homes on this piece of land. Thank you. Thank you. Public comment? Other public comment? Good evening. Uh, my name is David Shawner. I live at 5002 Jeffreys Court. Uh, I stand in opposition to the proposal as it stands before you today. However, I believe this matter could have been resolved had there been a follow-up to a conversation that uh, Mr. Balot and I had in which I was led to believe that there was some movement towards making this development smaller, smaller homes. Apparently, I don't know what happened to that, but it apparently didn't bear, bear fruit. The problem I have with this issue is not because it's infill. I think infill is important. I'd rather see infill than taking up additional urban space that extends our infrastructure, extends our costs. However, infill shouldn't mean overflow. And this project, and, and frankly, I, I, I give Roger a lot of credit. He's been very patient in this process, the prior process and the current one. And I don't want him to spend any more money than necessary either. However, the neighbors surrounding, about 130 neighbors in the Foxfire area, will see about 10% additional homes on 1.73 acres. 
a density which complies with RS3, but is totally inconsistent with RS7 and RS10. I don't think these lots have to be RS10. They aren't going to make it on 1.73 acres. But a better transition between the existing homes and the proposal ought to be the measure. So I'm not opposed to infill. I'm not opposed to residential there. I'm opposed to any project that doesn't take into account its surroundings. And its surroundings are RS7 and RS10. If this were an RS5 zoning request, I don't think there'd be much neighborhood pushback. And I think if this commission were to take an action tonight to put off making a decision about this project, I believe the parties can meet and find a resolution that's satisfactory to both the developer and the neighborhood. And that would be my request of you this evening. Let's think outside the box a little bit here and not just think we have to move forward with a yes or no this evening. I, th I thank you for your, uh, your attention. I'd be happy to answer com uh, questions if there are any. Thank you. Other public comment? Madam Mayor, Commissioners, thank you for letting me talk tonight. I'm the lucky lady, Pat Abersole, that lives at 5000 West 18th Street. I'm directly west of the proposed project. Um, if I walk out here tonight and you okay this plan as it's set before uh, you right now, I have talked to my realtor who sold me the house in 2018 and I will lose between $100,000 and $200,000. <coughs> Don't want to do that. I like the idea of homes on the lots. I do not like the a number of homes that's being proposed. I would like to see two car garage, not one car garage. Uh, the grade is the second thing I'd like to talk about. Um, the grade is being increased. So if you look across from my property, across the holding pond to where the houses will be built, they're going to be six to eight feet higher than what the ground was when um, the property was purchased. So basically the cement uh, that the houses are going to be built on is going to be six to eight feet higher than what mine is and we're talking a good, uh, you know, it's going to be make a great difference. They're going to be looking over the top of my roof. Third, I believe, I agree with everything that everybody said here tonight. We need just a smaller number of houses on the property. And Mayor, you were out at my house, and it was either April, May, or June. I have pictures, mm -hmm. or August. I don't remember one of the three months of 2019. I didn't know you at that time. I had just moved into the house about a year before that. But someone had called you because there's between six and eight feet of water running from the property next door across my uh, grass, across the driveway, and down the street. <laughs> so um, the drainage doesn't work. Uh, I'm not having any problems right now at the moment that I know of because there's a lot of weeds and a lot of grass. But once we remove all that and we have streets, parking lots, and houses of a high density, um, 
I'm afraid I'm going to have drainage problems again. When we were having the problem in 2019, I had a plumber come out because I had water seeping through my wall where the main water line comes into the house, going down the wall, thank goodness it was right by the sump pump, and went into a drain. I would ask him to repair it, and he said he wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole because all the big trees that had been pulled out um, and all the roots that had been pulled out, there probably was a pond of water setting up against my um, what did you call it, foundation. So I don't think the drainage works right now. I'm an old farm girl. I watched them put the pond in. They use topsoil. It's not going to hold any water back, and it's very, very small. It would have to be completely re-engineered. So I hope you take all that into consideration. Again, thank you for listening to me. Thank you. Additional public comment from the audience? If not, we'll go to Zoom. There's no one on Zoom, Mayor. Okay. Bring it back to the commission for discussion. And any thoughts? Um, I just, I was just noticing, noticing something at uh, looks like 18th in Research Park Drive. There's a roundabout there. Is that is that what I'm seeing? Okay. And then further on, I know it'll probably be part of our traffic study um, if that's uh, conducted. Uh, that on Walker Rusa, we're doing some work from Bob Billings to to 30 uh, Yeah, yeah. To yeah, Clinton, so. Clinton Parkway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, I would assume that, uh, you know, that's going to be part of it as well. So, um, but yeah, that's, that was just my only postulation on that. And uh, it's also, as far as I can see, there's no outward-facing driveway to uh, 18th Street, right? It's all focusing towards Research Parkway, right? Okay. Other comments, discussion? I, I did maybe want some follow-up on the um, suggestion that Patty made that there would be a grade difference. Um, she used a significant one. Um, can someone verify that that will or won't be the case? Roger, you want to come on up here? Our project is a little bit higher than her than her foundation, top of her foundation, but six or eight feet is that's not it. You know, I think you look out the windows of our houses. We're we're not. I think her roof level would probably be maybe two or three feet lower than ours. The reason this lot is a little bit higher is because we had to build a retention pond to trap the water. And if we left it real low like that, we couldn't do it. And her comment about her drainage issue she had in 19, I think everybody knows when they built Bridgehaven, when she flooded, there was no retention pond for Bridgehaven because it was under construction. It did flood, it flooded her, and it flooded the people in back. And it hasn't flooded since Bridgehaven completed their project and completed their detention pond. Thank you. This is probably a question for Randy, but I do want to be clear. The, the supermajority requirement, if there was not four votes for this, and we only had three votes, we'd have to send it back to the Planning Commission, correct? It wouldn't 
pass on three votes, correct? This is Randy Larkin, uh, Deputy City Attorney. Yes, to overturn the decision of the Planning Commission would take four votes, but to pass an ordinance takes three votes. So if we get caught in that in-between, we'd have to either negotiate among yourselves and discuss it or send it back to the Planning Commission for for uh, further analysis or something that you would need to make a decision. Any other discussion? I'd like to have Roger come up and talk about the, you had talked about in your letter, different lot sizes, and it seems to be a bone of contention with the, the neighborhood. And I know lot sizes reflect costs, price, whatnot. Is this something that you're willing to consider? And what does that look like? I would be willing to lose three, maybe four. So they'd almost, I think there'd be two or three left that are two story, the rest would be single. But I don't want, I don't want to spend the money to come back and go through planning and come back through here, unless I have some kind of approval from you guys that if we reduce this and reduce the lot sizes, I don't have to go through this again. I'm tired of this. <laughs> I've been, I've done this too long. I want to quit. I guess I'd ask that question to Randy. If, if we approved a preliminary development plan with the condition that there'll be no more than 11 lots or 10 lots, um, could that be finalized in a final development plan? Mr. Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney, the application was for what it is. Um, if you approved it with less lots and they were able to submit it to the planning department and met that, and that's administrative, I don't know what the cost that would be to Mr. Johnson or to his you know, client, and that, that could very well be done. So it would not necessarily have to go to Planning Commission and, and City Commission? No. If you approved it with a certain conditions and it, and it went back to, to the administrative procedures or the administrative process and met final development uh, requirements, then it could be done. So I'd have, Je is Jeff on, Jeff Crick? So if it came back to you with less, units, how would the planning department deal with that? We would need to take a look to see if it triggers the minor alteration or the major alteration portion of the development code in that process. There are some standards in there of when a change can be a minor process, which can be administrative, or if it would trigger a major process, which would send it back to the planning commission for their consideration. So it's essentially a determination of if the modific if the amendment is substantive or non-substantive. Right. And, and one item I can also note as part of the discussion is is the Catherine made a comment that our traffic drainage and downstream sewer analysis studies are still under review and, and pending. And she can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe 
MSO is currently reviewing those, and so that is information that we would get as part of the process as we move from the preliminary to the final development plan. And those are still in review, and I don't believe they have they have wrapped their their full point. But Catherine can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on that point. Come on up. Yes, the current comments were that there were no issues currently, that they were still in review. They just had not approved them yet. So they didn't foresee any, but that doesn't mean there wouldn't be some minor tweaks as that final development plan came through. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm fine with it. It, it is as is. Um, it's similar to the one in East Lawrence. Um, East Lawrence was able to go ahead and do it, and we're uh, wanting to spread infill development all around town, so equalize it to everyone. Um, it is, the driveway is faced towards Research Park Drive. Um, they've got extra parking so people don't have to park on the street. Uh, the traffic uh, drainage and sewer study seems like it's coming along. Um, it'll be turned over from industrial to residential, which is super important. Um, and it fills our need to go ahead and get some more housing in town. So, um, plus the planning commission kind of sailed through them, met all their their requirements, which are our requirements. So, for that, I'd approve it. Other thoughts? I have one more question for Roger. You've, I know you've done development, you've done some developmental work with tenants to homeowners. Yeah, I one still do. Things, one of the things that I hear from Rebecca From the, from the policy perspective of how do we create, how do we incentivize for different types of aspects of affordable housing or whether it's infill or things of that nature. Have you talked to her about this? And we also push public-private, not just in economic, but we've been trying to push it in housing as well. Have you had discussions with her about public-private and how that partnership impacts processes and whatnot. I know we're, we are knee deep in development code review and we're looking at the code. What you, we're talking about right now is a procedural piece and I know that she's talked about the procedural piece. So what do you, do you, do you have these conversations with her about how to strengthen public-private partnerships as it relates to housing development work. Okay, I think I'll try and answer your question the best I can. I've talked to Rebecca about both public and private. I've also talked to Rebecca about this piece. If I get turned down tonight, I'm gonna to give it to Rebecca. I'm gonna donate it to her. Her comment to me is she'll wait two years to the new zoning codes or development codes change she can come back and do this without any of this. You know, I'll support her, I'll help her. She can get the money to do this 
where I have to do it all with my own money. I'm just, you know, this is the last stance for me. You, you know, you guys decide whatever you want. At this point, I'm at your mercy. You know, I would like to do this. If I don't do this, I don't care. I'll just help Rebecca do it later. That might lead me to a question that Catherine and I, I'm sure Jeff could answer. Um, if this were an affordable housing um, project, it's not, it's not what's in front of us. I don't know how this even became a conversation, but um, she would be able to use the affordable housing extra density, would she not? If it met the criteria for the affordable housing, the double density, yes, potentially. I, and if, if you all are struggling with the density discussions, I may be able to help um, enlighten you on the zoning districts and the density and how this density fits in with other densities, if if that helps. Yes. So um, how we calculate density is dwelling unit per acre. And so we take the overall area of the lot and we divide it by whatever is required for a minimum lot in that designation. So in this case, it would be RS3. So we would use the 3,000 square foot lot to determine what would be the maximum potential density that could happen on this particular lot. In this case, if they use the whole lot without the internal drives that they're providing through the PD overlay, and I should also mention that they have kind of an extraordinary setback requirement on this particular parcel that is not being imposed by the development code, is being imposed by deed restrictions on that particular parcel. So they don't have the building area for the entire lot that say the development on East Lawrence had where they could develop the entire lot for development. So if we use that basic math for density calculation in this particular spot, they could have up to 25 units on this particular parcel. Um, if it's RS5 zoning, straight up RS5, and they were able to develop the whole lot, um, minus even the area that would potentially be for right of way um, interior, which would be approximately 5,000 to 7,000 square feet, they could do 15 units in RS5. If they did RS7, uh, I think the math comes out to approximately 10 units. So what is um, being proposed tonight is actually a much uh, lower density than could potentially be built on a straight zoning without the PD overlay. So as I mentioned earlier, that PD overlay, while it does offer some flexibility for modification options, it also does offer protection for the area because if there's regular zoning, RS3 without a PD overlay, that would simply be moving on to building permits after the zoning is approved. Whereas with a PD or plan development, you have the preliminary development plan and the final development plan. And so those plans have to align. As Jeff mentioned, uh, if a change in density were to happen where you recommend a different density or a condition with a different density, we have to look at whether it's a major or minor or a substantial change to that development plan. I think the cutoff is 10%. So if it's 10% difference, it has to go back to the Planning Commission. And Jeff can confirm that number um, if he has the code open and handy. So that kind of gives you the general idea of what is permitted as far as densities go in zoning districts and how the PD overlay is affecting this particular um, application in that RS3. And the RS3 in this case is so that they can get the lots to meet the general 
uh, setback requirements for each individual lot, which in this proposal they do, in addition to those extraordinary setbacks that they have on the perimeter of the property. Um, I believe they're like 40 and 50 feet um, on the perimeter of the property. So if that helps you in your density discussion. Catherine, what would the density be if it was now on 12D duplex? Mm. Well, that would permit a, um, uh, actually the dwelling unit calculation is the same, and I think there's a footnote at the bottom of the table. I don't have it open at, obviously at the moment, so I'd have to check it, um, but you have to calculate whether or not that density permits the number of units. Um, it would be a similar density, probably slightly higher um, than the RS5. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. I mean, certainly if, if you go along the IPB district, you know, if you go north of Bob Billings, you have, you know, OM12D is the transition um, between industrial and the RS7 lots um, all along, you know, that um, area, all along the IPP district. I mean, the, of course, traditional zoning, um, says you go from industrial to some medium density, then you go to single family. So if you go all along, um, you know, Legends Drive um, and Little Knife Drive and Spruce Drive, I'm looking at the map here, these are all RM12, which is the zoning district in between that and all the RS7 lots. And, you know, if, if you look at those 1.7 acres, again, as Catherine said, you have 14, 15 lots, duplexes, duplex lots, um, but units, 15 units um, in that area, of course, backing up to R7. Now, obviously, along major streets, you have RM24, you have an apartment complex on 6th Street, for example, and on the other side of that apartment complex is RS7. Right, again, you have high density backing up to RS7, RS10. I mean, that's the traditional zoning. So when I look at this and say, well, you have an industrial, um, and then you try to transition from industrial to an RS7, you know, certainly an, you know, an RM, RM12D, an, an RMS3, an RMS5, or all ones um, that work um, as that transitional zoning um, from one um, zone to the to the other, um, you know. So I, I think even under traditional um, zoning regulations, you would um, see that kind of transition. Um, this would not be an RS10, would not be an RS7. It would certainly be an RS5 or an RS3. An RS5 to RS3 would have. Um, you know, the same um, density levels. And certainly under the new development code, um, you know, I think the theory is under the new th development code, long way from being passed, um, would be to encourage d density that we have a code now that makes it difficult to have this density and, and causes some of these um, issues um, of trying to figure out how to get, get, get more density into our, our city. So, um, you know, I do think under, um, you know, under some of the new theories of density and under possibly what the new code would look like, you would, you would have a chance for this to be even more dense um, than it is under this particular proposal. Um, so, 
you know, I do think, um, you know, because we're going from a, an industrial to a residential, it is a, it's a transitional zone. Um, I'm going to support it. I kind of don't want to let the offer drop. That's very um, kind of Mr. Johnson to suggest that he would um, consider um, dropping three units, but I don't hear staff guaranteeing that he doesn't have to go through that process again. Um, we're unable to tell us if that constitutes a 10% change at this time, but we've been talking about this for a while. Any chance Jeff uh, did some math while we were chatting? Commissioner Shipley, I was trying to do some math real quickly. Um, I don't know if I've been successful or not. That code section states a major change is one that is increasing the proposed gross residential density or intensity of use by more than 5%. Involves a reduction in the area set aside for common open space in general or recreational open space or natural open space in particular. An increase in more, by more than 10% of the total floor area proposed for non-residential uses, which in this case would not be applicable given that it's uh, all residential. Mm -hmm. uh, an increase by more than 5% of the total ground area covered by buildings. Changes in residential use or building type. Increases in the height of buildings by more than five feet or represents a new change to the preliminary development plan that creates a substantial adverse impact on the surrounding landowners and changes a residential building type or non-residential structure by more than 10% in size. So, I, you know, real quickly, I don't know if it would meet some of the other ones that may constitute the threshold for a major change. But I don't think it would meet the, the, the number there at the 5% rule for the increasing the proposed gross residential density or intensity by more than 5%. So it would be decreasing away from that one. But depending upon the uh, layout of the buildings and, and their footprints, that may constitute a major change ultimately. And that's the part I, I don't, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head right now. Can I make one comment that you hadn't brought up yet? Come up to the podium, Ellen. I know you're part of the applicant. One of the biggest problems with this with partial is that there are huge setback develop or on the sides. 50 on the 50 on the west side, 20 on the seventh side, on the south side, and on the east side. That's a huge amount to take out of a piece of land to be able to build something on. In, in your in your thinking about. RS and R2 and R3 and R3. That's, I just want you to understand that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I um, um, I think that's a good. I think it's a good project. I concur with um, Commissioner Littlejohn and in, in his statements and just um, explanation from staff regarding density. Potential density in um, in this in this area, and I do think it is transitional. I'm going to support this as it is, as it's written, um, and I, I the, the addressing the the stormwater issue makes sense um, with the the bridge. Uh, um, community to the north when they built finally built their detention pond that makes sense, so I'm going to support this, and it follows 2040 to the T. So I, I know I've said this before with with infill development, and I think Miss Allen made a comment about it as well. No infill development project is the same, and I think we have 
put a dog whistle on infill and we want to cookie we want to stamp it as it being one particular aspect and there is more innovation that can be in the infill development than any regular development and so we have to look at these things we have to look at infill development projects as that they're not all the same and so while i i like what the applicant brought before us I was glad to hear what Jeff said about the substantive and non-substantive changes since it dealt more with the increase and this is a decrease and I would have proposed to the commission to consider an increase to 10 lots down from the 14 lots um, since that most of those, as Mr. Johnson said, would be more ranch style um, and would take a little bit of those height requirements out from some of the other um, units that he had discussed for have that to have that conversation. On the inverse, what Jeff didn't say is that because of other aspects, other criteria that couldn't be seen right now, that doesn't guarantee that this wouldn't go back to the Planning Commission, which is, un again, being nuanced to this, but also studying this, are, we, are these procedural aspects that we can address that will they be mitigated with a new planning code? And it sounds like they would, but however, it puts us in a quandary right now when we're trying to address housing and we're mixing competing values and we have to try to res resolve this and we're fighting to resolve it. So I would have loved, I wanted to support this. I wanted to support this with a modification of 10 units. It doesn't sound like I have that support from the commission, but I did want to state that. Uh, yeah, I would have uh, liked to have seen us try to come up with a compromise like that. Um, um, and I, if we could convince staff to give us a guarantee, which I, I hear the applicant asking for, and fair enough um, for all the reasons that they stated. Um, uh, it is disappointing to me that we couldn't um, push that a little bit further. Um, get to that compromise and just want to make sure. But I feel like this puts us in a catch-22. Yeah, it doesn't matter what we do. We're, you know, um, I, I do want to agree with you um, that all these infill projects are going to be different. So it's, uh, I uh, understand all the ways that um, people would like to pigeonhole any particular decision we've made as some great message to the community, uh, but it's not. And even when we talk about um, uh, things that go to um, uh, zone, Board of Zoning Appeals, every decision we make is a separate decision. It's not a precedent. If memory serves, I tend to ask Randy that every single time, but since he's there, I'll ask him again. This is Randy Larkin, Deputy City Attorney. Yes, each of these cases stand on their own. Each of determined on a case-by-case -case basis. They don't establish any precedent going forward. Thank you, Randy. Um, uh, so I, 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 I don't, I don't accept that. Um, uh, indeed, we are trying to balance uh, different needs of, of already established neighborhoods with uh, the need for housing, and um, it is an unfortunate moment that we're in, that we are between the, the new codes. Um, because I think that would take some of the, definitely take some of the pressure out of these situations. Um, uh, but that's not the situation we're in. 
Um, so unless there's anyone else willing to have the conversation over those, the change of those few, okay. They're doing what we're, we're asking them to do. <coughs> but, but Commissioner Littlejohn, I think we kind of say that as a blanket and it's not because there's nuances to each one of these projects. You know, Alan spoke about the different setbacks. So it's doing something. Yeah, it's an infill. But he just said, based on the deed, there's different criteria to the setbacks. So we have to take that variable into, into consideration in this piece. So it's, we're, we're, but we are literally between a rock and a hard place because we are changing code while having new code. And we're seeing that our current code as it stands is not able to have the nuance and flexibility to do something that is a nuanced and flexible project. Infill projects are nuanced and they have to be nimble and flexible. They're not cookie cutter. They can't be. And it has nothing to do with the community benefit and, the, and desires of the community. It has to do with setbacks, lot requirements, affordable housing pieces. We've, talk, we, we've talked about this in different iterations on all of these projects. And I, it, it sh that, that is, that's the, the red herring telling us we have to be more broad and innovative in our thought around infill projects. It's, it's not, the idea of putting it in there and saying that it's just this, it can't be that. No two infill projects are alike. Anyway, Mayor, you have what, five different votes you need to do here? Yep, four. 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 We got the first one, which is um, item number two. Do you have a motion? Move to consider approving, the, well, hold on, wait, before I get into this. Can we have the slide up? It's um, four. The four votes. Yeah, page 40 of 49. The first one's gonna be, if this helps at all, under item two, approving the rezoning, right. adopting or on first reading order, it's 9997. Yes. I move that we approve the request to rezone Z2300017, approximately 1.73 acres from IBP, Industrial Business Park District, to RS3PD, single dwelling residential with planned development overlay district, located in 17, at 1717 Research Park Drive, submitted by Alan Bloyd Architects on behalf of 127Y LLC, and adopt on first reading ordinance number 9997. Second. I have a first and second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? Aye. Passes four to one. The second item, which is under number three, under action number three. Approve the, I move to approve the preliminary development plan, PDB 23150, all three PD plan development for 14 single dwelling residential lots located at 1717 Research Park Drive. Second. Uh, first and a second, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Nay. Passes three to two. I move to approve the modification request for excess parking spaces. Second. Got a first and a second, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Nay. Nay. Passes uh, three to two. I move to approve the modification request to reduce minimum lot sizes for an RS3 zoning district. 
Second. I got a first and second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Aye. Passes um, five to zero. All right, we're on to All right. item number four. We'll let folks get out of the room if they're going to leave. to receive an update on the efforts to redevelop the city-owned parking lots in downtown. Logan, Mayor and Commissioners, Britt Crumkano, the city's economic development director. And Kirk, can you just help me bring up my PowerPoint? I guess I can actually do that right now. Well, it doesn't look like it's up. Can you help me with that? It's the very last one. Thank you very much. This is the hardest part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mine's still loading. It's the city parking lot one. about that. I'm also losing control of the mouse. Let's see if we've got it now. Nope, still not there. Kurt controls this from up there, so you just like it. Here we go. So, <clears throat> again, for the second round, um, commissioners, uh, staff is asking for your direction on the redevelopment of our city-owned parking lots in downtown. Uh, this, if you if you recall, the uh, downtown master plan says that these lots present an excellent opportunity for redevelopment of mixed-use um, projects. So staff has spent several 
months doing due diligence and researching and trying to check out the feasibility of which of these lots we think would be best for redevelopment. We've narrowed it down to four. There's two on New Hampshire Street and two on Vermont Street. So tonight, what we would like to have you help us with is to narrow down um, the parking lots that you would like to see prioritized for an RFP so that we can go ahead and proceed with marketing these lots. We also would like your input on what your redevelopment goals would be for each particular lot. Um, and then if you do want to see public benefits incorporated, we'd like to know what your priority public benefits would be for, again, each of those lots. I'll, I'll then go through um, an overview of next steps. We can talk about any additional things that um, maybe you guys would like to add direction on. Um, so I'm just going to quickly introduce you to the lots. Parking lot two is just, it's the lot that's just west of the Borders Bookstore. It's uh, seven-tenths of an acre with 72 spaces at 711 New Hampshire Street. Parking lot three is at 836 Vermont. It's our largest parking lot at 1.4 acres. It has 167 spots. Uh, this is northeast of the Carnegie Building. Parking lot four is at 825 New Hampshire Street. It has eight-tenths of an acre and 86 spaces. This is just west of the 888 New Hampshire Street building. And finally, parking lot 10 is at 1020 Vermont Street on almost seven-tenths of an acre, 65 parking spaces. This is the lot that is just south of D&D Tire. So again, uh, we'd like to hear from you on what your priority would be for redevelopment goals. It can be anything ranging from a pure, what I would call economic development project, which is, uh, it tries to maximize the property tax and sales tax revenues, as well as uh, provide down, job, support jobs bringing jobs down to downtown. Uh, an example of this might be a really strong retail generator on the first floor and possibly office um, on the upper levels. That entire project would be assessed as commercial. So it's gonna get assessed at a 25% commercial rate. So again, those are the types of projects that would maximize both your sales tax revenues as well as your property tax revenues. Um, the other goal is to um, bring public benefits to downtown, things that the private market would not necessarily uh, bring um, on their own. So you could ask that private ben that public benefits be incorporated. Usually developers won't do these because they're not going to get any return on investment. So more than likely, these projects will also involve some kind of subsidy. Um, the third option is uh, just to produce some ready cash. Uh, we could just sell these lots and let the private market decide what they want to do with them. And we have some cash that we could divert into other uses, whether they're for homeless initiatives or other types of social services or wherever we need those. Um, so those are the three redevelopment goals that we have come up with. You may think of additional ones. So next steps, again, tonight, what we'd like you to do is help us narrow these lots down to two or three that you'd like to see go forward for an RFP. Um, help identify what the redevelopment goals you would prioritize for each lot. And then if you do want to see public benefits, give us a, an idea of which one you would prioritize for that particular lot. 
After that, staff can go and we'll work on the timeline. Uh, we'll have the lots appraised. Uh, we'll do the RFP and send it out, uh, review it, and then come back to you with um, the city manager's recommendations. And then if you approve whatever project, uh, we can proceed with uh, the agreements and, and such to continue the project. So uh, I like spreadsheets. This helps me kind of think. Um, I think in spreadsheets. So here we have the four lots. Um, again, the redevelopment goals for each lot that you would prioritize. The public benefits, these are primarily pulled out of the uh, downtown Lawrence master plan. Uh, there may, again, be additional ones. So we have another category. And then finally, we do have uh, additional staff here. I believe Brad Harrell with the parking um, department is here. We have Adam Weigel with transit. Jeff Crick with the planning department is all here in case you guys want to ask some additional questions. They've also been part of the group that's been studying this and trying to figure out the feasibility. So we really would like to open it up for your discussion and your direction at this point. Thank you. Any questions for Britt? Well, I guess if Brad's on, I'd like to hear a little bit about the parking utilization. I know that I read that somewhere, but a little bit about the parking utilization of each of those lots. Yeah, this is uh, Brad Hill, parking supervisor. So um, we have not done recent data on on these particular lots. We were looking more of this direction on which one to consider. I would bring that back as an updated, but um, from our most recent updates, lot two peaks at 72% occupied around 1 p.m. Lot three is 67% around 2 p.m. And lot four is 85% around 1 p.m. and lot 10 is 67 percent around 1 p.m. as well. So obviously around the lunch hour is one of our uh, peak times where, where we're occupied, but at 85 percent um, at the uh, most utilized parking lot, there's still available parking. And that was lot four that had the 85 percent? Yeah. I didn't hear lot 10. 67? 67. Um, and uh, sorry, I didn't. Go ahead. Uh, lot four uh, in the morning is a uh, is that still holding steady? Uh, holding steady at like it looks like seventy eight percent. No, in the mornings a lot of these lots, especially those two hour free parking lots, are are barely uh, very underutilized. You know, somewhere around that thirty to forty percent generally. That that peak is just around the lunch hour, and then normally it digresses back as well in the afternoon. Any other questions? I guess I have a couple questions maybe for Brett or others. First question is, I guess, why not put an RFP out for all four lots? Why, why reduce it when we're in the gathering stage? Why, why not just see what people think about all four lots? If that's a direction that you'd like to take, we can go ahead and do that as well. Um, I think we just thought that maybe you'd want to narrow it down and see how it goes for maybe the first couple, and then we can always proceed later with the additional ones. 
Okay. I'd also add, you know, there's a capacity issue for analyzing development proposals. I do think we'll have a very strong response from the market. And so when we're pulling through multiple development proposals, I think we want to be realistic about what we can be successful at. Um, and also, if we're if, if uh, proponent possible developers are proposing on multiple lots, that also becomes more complicated. So I'd say both of those two are kind of we're we're thinking three would be ideal. Okay. And I guess maybe talk a little bit about you know proposals received and review. I mean, this request for proposal. Give me a level. Are we looking for sketches? Are we looking for, you know, submission-ready documents? I mean, what kind of level are we asking for in this OFP? Do we have that decided yet? We don't really have that decided. I think we need to be conscientious of how much um, expense developers are willing to go through to submit a proposal and what all it'll take for them. So we may do an addition, uh, first review and get back to them and say, this looks really good. Our group thinks that this is a very interesting project. Can you give us a little bit more? So we may vary it according to um, the rounds rather than just um, you know initially. It's a real issue, I think, for developers to output a lot of money yeah. and time for these proposals? Well, that's what I was thinking too. That's what I was wondering yeah. on the level we'd be asking, at least on the first, first pass. It, it would also, of course, be uh, re requesting information on the team, uh, sample projects that they've done, and that sort of thing. So usually that's kind of uh, boilerplate stuff that they have at the ready. And we're certainly going to be looking at their expertise and their creativity around these projects. And I think I know the answer to this. Maybe this is for Adam, or maybe, Britt, you can answer this. Mm -hmm. If we ask for proposals that included some, um, at least a consideration of a downtown bus hub, would there be, would that be a, would we envision that being a public-private partnership with public money involved from our, our, other, our, our current funds, or how would you see that working? I'll let Adam speak to this as well, but I don't see how it can't be. I, I think, again, a transit hub is not going to benefit the developer in terms of their return on investment, so I think we're looking at um, public funds for that. Uh, I will let Adam speak, because I think he does have some funds that could be put into this project. However, I don't know um, how far they will go, and maybe he can speak to that as well. Sure. So uh, we do have a state grant project that we were awarded for $1.6 million, um, and that's matched with local money. So we have $2 million committed to a downtown station um, that we would expect um, it to be a public-private partnership. If that was a component, we would want to work with our state and federal partners to work with a private developer to make that happen. And if I recall from the discussion way back when um, several of these lots that we're talking about tonight at least possibly could work for a bus hub and under different configurations they were looked at correct correct so through our route redesign study that was about an 18-month process uh, we came to understand that we need 
uh, five routes still in the downtown area, so we do need space for five bus bays, but that can be accommodated in different ways. So I believe lot three was the only one that had um, straight curb space that allowed us to remain on the street, but uh, other lots could work if we're able to pull buses off the street. But at that point, you're likely talking about an entire ground floor um, dedicated to that type of use. I say that not as an architect, and maybe there are other interesting ideas on there on how to make that fit. I, I would just throw out there, Adam, I don't know if you saw the picture I added from Lacrosse when I was to the public comment section of the agenda. And I was in Lacrosse where my daughter was this summer, and I put a picture in of their downtown bus hub, which again is the ground floor, is a, is a bus hub the second floor is a parking garage mm -hmm. and then they have three floors of um, residential above it residential. that was an interesting concept and i actually i think there's retail in that and there is retail in that corner where you see a couple now they had the advantage there where they could pull through they they pulled all the way through that so they weren't turning um so that none of our lots really work maybe in that way except maybe two but Anyway, I thought it was an interesting concept to, to look at. Those are my questions. Any other questions or staff? Okay. We will open it up for public comment at this time. Any public comment? Nobody here. <laughs> Any public comment on, on, on Zoom? No, Mayor. Chicken and egg. Nope. Okay, we'll bring it back to the commission. Well, shooting off the hip, I initially like uh, 2, 3, and 10. Um, and uh, I know it was a while ago in September, but we did get like a, a drawing or a mock-up for a grocery store on the edge of 10, or edge of 3, that big one. And I would love for us to have a downtown grocery store. Um, so if, if not necessarily there, but since it's already been placed there, not placed there, but imagined, um, hopefully that would give it a little bit of a run up to maybe have something there than maybe some commercial on, on top or what, what, what have you. But uh, yeah, I, I like, uh, Commissioner Finkeldy's bus idea as well uh, for utilizing another one of our lots, um, uh, or maybe three, I'm not sure. But uh, um, I think it would go further if we, now I don't know if we're gonna be able to make it happen, have the bus on, you know, the bus station on bottom and then, you know, commercial on top. But that's a, that's a great idea that Lacrosse is doing. You said two, three, and ten. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess I'm three and ten for sure. My concern about two is it's the only one that only it's the only lot that has one entrance. The other three lots all have two entrances. Mm -hmm. It also is a little more isolated. The rest are most likely ten, not so much, but certainly three and four located much closer to parking garages um, and two is a bit more isolated there 
Um, now, I could see why, on the other hand, I can see why you wouldn't accept proposals on three and four and, you know, and then have both of those. Um, but I guess, you know, two is the one I, I kind of thought would be a little harder. Um, and I guess, you know, I think, I mean, obviously public benefits, I think grocery store is something we want to um, encourage. I think, um, you know, the bus hub, I think it's worth looking at. Um, you know, if you, if you, if basically you had, you know, you know, it's our land and we build a, a parking structure, you know, and in, you know, so a, a building in which the, the buses could go under like that lacrosse one. And then we say, give us a plan for the three floors above it. I mean, you already have a structure, you have free land. Um, I could see that possibly being, uh, you know, something that could be um, worked in. But again, I, I mean, I think we have to give flexibility to see what we come up with. Um, I guess those are two I'm interested in. Um, um, and then I'd say I'm, I'm certainly interested in affordable housing as a public benefit. And then lastly, on the redevelopment goals, I think it would be economic development and public benefits. I'm not in this for cash, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, obviously, um, you know, retail with some Class A office space. We have pretty limited Class A office space downtown um, and certainly not rentable um, Class A office space. Though we might have some projects coming along that will do that, so I probably wouldn't necessarily put that in as a public benefit, except as it relates to economic development. But um, and so, Britt, I guess, are you asking us like to say on this particular site we'd like a grocery store, or that would be helpful if there's a particular site that or sites that you think would be ideal for a particular public benefit that you would like to see prioritized, that would be really helpful. So I want to throw uh, something I noticed. Um, so on lot two, I just, um, on that north side, that Palladium building, Palladium building, that has windows on the south side. I don't, um, I imagine that could be a challenge um, to build certain things there that don't take out their sightline. Um, it's also a historic building. I don't know that it's registered, but it's certainly a um, landmark. Um, and then a similar issue you might run into, I'm not saying it takes these off the table, I just, it's a consideration, is, um, let's see. Oh, maybe not. Okay. Uh, I was thinking of the one that's at 9th in New Hampshire, but that's not what we're looking at. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, so the I think that's right. The uh, For lot four, the building on the south corner um, 
is also a historic building and a landmark. Um, I don't know that it had windows on that side, but again, you may still have to have a certain amount of uh, distance between it and uh, larger buildings as a consideration. Which building that lot for? Um, this is a historic, um, it was a hotel built by one of the founders. Mm -hmm. um, I forget how old it is, but. Okay. So which, it does have windows on that side. Yeah. So which lots were you interested in, Commissioner? I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to keep my mind open to any of, of these, uh, depending on what's appropriate, which is not what you are asking me. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and I, I agree, grocery store, bus hub are my priorities. Um, and of course, yeah, any, any residential should have a, a good percentage of uh, affordable housing. Um, uh, and you know what we're going to hear for sure is uh, the loss of parking. Even though we've got these percentages here, what, what that doesn't tell us actually is the percent that's used at night um, and during events. Um, and yes, I know we have two other parking garages. I do, but I also know what I hear from the public. That's my actual job to know what I'm going to hear from the public, and it. It's always about the loss of 10 or 20 parking spaces. So um, if there's, you know, you can put a bus hub and a, and a layer of parking and, you know, residential or um, office space, those all seem like great combinations to me. Um, Britt, uh, it's, I, I just want to make sure, I know what the downtown master plan and uh, kind of um, the focus groups that contributed to the information that uh, one of the things I, I think I was reading that came from it is if we do anything on a parking lot, we want to make sure to go back with with parking as well to kind of not diminish parking. Is is that what I saw in there? Um, On-site parking, I would consider a public benefit. Okay. This is because it's not required in the downtown. Uh, commercial district. If we are asking a developer to do that, we probably are going to have to subsidize it. Um, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, if they decide to go underground, if they go above ground, I'm, it's probably not quite as expensive. But if we ask them to put that in, um, again, they're not going to get anything out of it. So any of those types of things that, you know, we we are asking the developer to do for our benefit versus theirs, I would consider a public benefit. Okay. And I agree. I think on-site poking will be something we, we hear about for sure. And so, I mean, I don't, I see that as something to be considered. Um, but as you said, I, I, I mean, I think um, some of these projects, on-site parking might be, as Britt said, we can put an underground parking lot if you're willing to pay for it. If not, we're not going to do it. <laughs> you know, you, you'll call. I mean, I don't see, um, I mean, but I, I think putting it in there as a um, question mark is certainly worth, you know, having in there. I guess the other thing I would say is maybe if we're picking lots as well, you know, it seemed to me that lot three or four would be the only ones 
well not the only ones that would seem to be the prime location for grocery stores I mean lot 10 would seem to be too far south for that and lot two is probably too small and maybe too far north so again if I'm filling out your little chart I'd put grocery stores at lot you know three or four um, and then if, if we keep four in I'm not I know we don't have consensus on that but uh, how come you think lot 10 is too far south for a grocery store? Only because it's closer to Dillon's. Closer to Apple. Yeah. I mean, I think they... I was going to say there was a, uh, I forget what it was called, Wild Oats right next to yeah. it. Yeah. So. No, I only meant, only meant that <laughs> often they have, it. you know, these grocery stores have radiuses and yeah. Yeah. it's it's closer to Dillon's. Um, In the north. South. Yeah. And, and so the closer you get to North Orleans, but yeah. again, that's just a... What do I know? Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I, I wanted to remind everyone, um, we, well, as Commissioner um, Littlejohn pointed out, we have seen some uh, concept designs for some of these parking lots when it, with the bus hub. And one thing that I thought was interesting and with the development across the street here, I still think we shouldn't um, um, uh, rule out is changing the um, parking on the west side to angled parking, which would actually create mar more parking spaces um, and conceivably slow the traffic down because while the traffic on Massachusetts is slow, um, the traffic on Vermont and New Hampshire is not, in spite of all the lovely stop signs and stoplights. Um, so I think there's also a lot more leeway to, to reimagine this streetscape as well as the um, parking lot. Agreed. Yeah. So real quick, um, I'm of the mind of focusing on three and four and avoiding two and 10. Um, with lot three, um, wanted to bring back the, the conversation that Andy, not Andy, oh sorry, uh, that Adam had about, it's getting late, with the bus hub and what we've heard from other commissioners this evening is about some mixed-use collaborate. I think um, when we talked about the bus hub, the parking, the parking garage, the grocery store, it made me think of, oh gosh, kind of the Brookside area by UMKC where they have the parking garage with the Whole Foods, that type of piece there. That's kind of what I envision for that area that where there, you have a grocery store with the parking that could just as well accommodate um, some type of bus bay where we're having to park that there. So I think lot three is the prime location for that. It's the most ideal from what I've been able to, to think about and process. With lot four, um, thinking more of along the lines of either something mixed use with housing. Um, I appreciate that you put on here a permanent um, location for a farmer's market. One of the things that I've, I've shared, and I think that could be an advantage for us as a dual purpose location, is that having a covered 
farmer's market allows for that space to be utilized as a public benefit in multiple different areas where if it's covered so that we can extend the farm mar farmer's market season a little bit longer or it does allow us to be able to use it for any type of entertainment activity where if there's an inclement weather that that can be utilized if it doesn't conflict with the with the season of the farmers market. So I think there's value in that, and utilizing that lot four to do some type of mixed use, mixed development, where I can see either some type of housing, commercial, or whether it's housing, affordable housing, with building out a um, a permanent. A a permanent structure for the farmers market and building that relation that relationship that it would have to access the food access another access to food um, that could be offset by having the grocery store on the opposite side so just high level those are some thoughts that I've had about those two but three and four definitely two and ten not so much well I'm interested in um, lots two four and ten um, the idea of a grocery store in the lot four area, I think that that's um, a good good idea. Um, obviously, uh, definitely parking, mixed with parking on, on those lots. Um, the idea of um, uh, commercial with smaller type um, retail spaces versus the, the larger ones. I think we're seeing that more and more and more niche types businesses, opportunity for smaller businesses to come in. Um, and the bus, I'm interested in the bus concept, of possibly have the bus below with, with um, building on top. Affordable housing is definitely um, high on my list as well as maintaining as much parking as we can. Those would be high. Can I ask why not lot three? Mm, I think um, I'm just not uh, that one there. I'm I'm just not ready to to want to get rid of that one yet at this point in time. Just to proffer even a more just a partial like. A partial. Mm -hmm. okay. As long as we can again, it's the parking yeah. that I'm concerned about. I mean, I, again, I'm only speculating from some of the proposals. If people who put parking garages, you know, people have had the Borgia's parking garage idea, the Allen Press parking garage, I mean, grocery store idea, the Borgia's grocery store idea. My guess would be with, you know, I'm no expert, is that they would put a grocery store in about half of that and they would want ground level parking for the grocery store. So you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't. I mean, that, that might be a proposal we get. So I guess I'm interested in three because it's the biggest lot. And I guess I wanted to see, you know, what we get on that, um, you know. And, and, and it could be, like I said, I, th I think the harder thing will be, I'm not, you know, if we get a really good proposal on three that we like, and you get a good proposal on four, it's going to be harder to take both those lots out because of parking. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I, I see your point, Mayo, but I guess I'm, I'm definitely interested in three. The other thing I would say about 10 is I think you're going to get the least pushback on it, and it might be a good pilot. Um, so the, the business to the south has its own parking. The business to the north doesn't, but on the other side is the larger lot three. And many of the businesses you can see have at least one parking space 
um, for the businesses. I think the ones that don't are using that space as um, deck space, as eating space. Um, so um, that's that's the amiable quality I, I imagine Lot 10 would have um, as a way of starting mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. and showing people that it can be done and it can bring us something. It, it does seem to be a little smaller, however, so I see that. It may not be worth a developer's time if it's too small. But it might be right for a farmer's market. Used to be where the farmer's market was, right? <laughs> That's a good point, actually. That's a real good point, yeah. So it looks like we have a consensus on 10. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not closed-minded to any of them, yeah. for that matter. But you know, that, that would be my preference at this point in time to see what we get. But I'm open to any ideas that come across. I mean, housing, housing slash farmer's market on 10. Eh, it be something. Mm -hmm. I do have a question. Um, with the housing piece, my, I guess my question would be, because we've kind of talked around it but we, and added, not really added with the county, but utilizing that reinvestment housing incentive district, if any of these lots would qualify, could we designate that, could we designate these lots if we were going to do housing on one as a, with that designation? I am so, not... I, I can speak a little to that. Um, from what I understand, from how the the, the now reinvestment housing district works, mm -hmm. um, it is only for uh, house. It is for housing only. Um, so the developer, if there was any kind of reinvestment, and that there was an added category that as long as infrastructure had existed there for ten years, mm. um, it can qualify. I also don't know how it interact because there is a second category that if it's in a downtown area that is a designated. Um, HUD uh, district, <clears throat> um, but again, from what I understand from what um, Gilmore and Bell has told us about how all that works, it would only be for either second floor and above improvements if the fir first floor is commercial, or, or it would be for residential only mm. improvements. So if we wanted to get kind of our, our money's worth, or, or especially if the developer wanted to do mixed use, mm -hmm. we would only be able to afford them incentives on the housing the one portion. on the housing piece. Correct. Okay. But we could do it. I would have to double check, but it, it's been a while, but yeah. Yeah. Which, by the way, I would offer as well. I don't know if I said is part of mine, affordable housing. But yeah. Of course, affordable housing is part of it as well. So actually, I do think we have some consensus, actually, um, as what I'm tallying up here is we've got um, at least four that were okay with lot three hmm. and um, two right now for lot 10, at least two. Oh, actually three for lot 10. So. So choice between two and four. I don't want to put three and four together. Yeah, I yeah. that's kind of yeah. why I didn't choose yeah. them in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So I'd rather have okay. one or the other. Yeah. So, I mean. So you want, sounds like maybe we, we have more consensus for two, four, and ten? Two, three, and ten. Oh, excuse me. Two, three, and ten. Two, three, and ten. That's what I meant. Two. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right for folks? Okay. With I mean, if we're going to be iffy with four, I'm just good with three and ten. I'm, 
from a capacity and getting this scaled up. I'm I'm good with three or ten, but if we add it, add two in there, it is what it is. But I'm just mm -hmm. the record firm on three and ten. Okay, thank you. Taking what I wanted for four to ten. Mm -hmm. All right. So does that get you, Britt? It helps. Yes. You know, can't, <laughs> that really does help us narrow it down. Crazy. Yeah, I, I think so. And and you had. Um, you had some good um, conversation about the public benefit and the uses, and I think we can assimilate those into, you know, a, an RFP. There will be a lot of work, thoughtful work, put into the RFP so that we're not prescribing too narrowly what we want to see and allow the developers in the market to to tell us a story as well. Now, I will say, if we could. If we were able to sell one of these and apply that to, if there are opportunities with some of the school district lots that we've talked about with the lot on the East Heights lot or something along that nature, I wouldn't be opposed to that. Because selling a lot and then using that money to pay to acquire the land for a project like that. So not to throw a wild card in there, but <laughs> that kind of popped up in my head. Okay. Yeah, think, yeah. Sorry. sorry, we were solid on two, and maybe we sold one in order to subsidize an affordable housing child care project. Okay. Just plant that seed right there. We'll, we'll get to work. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate Proceed it. with this. <laughs> All right. We're on to um, uh, commission items. Commission items. Any commission items? No, seeing none. On to the city manager report. Um, four items on here. The one I just want to really highlight is our judge um, establishing a pilot uh, night court program, which I just think is, is a great experiment, and I think it will be popular and a great service to our community. So I was um, really excited for him to, to offer that out there. All right. Any questions for Craig on this? Not. We'll take it to public comment. Any public comment from the room? Nope. Nobody's here. <laughs> Any public comment on Zoom? No, Mayor. We'll go to calendar items. Item K. Any calendar items? Nothing changing. Okay. We'll go on to item L, which is an executive session. Oh. I move that we recess into executive session for approximately 30 minutes to discuss a personnel matter involving a city employee pursuant to the non elected personnel matter exception of KSA 754319, subsection B1. The justification for the executive session is to protect employee privacy. The city commission will resume its regular meeting in the city commission room at approximately fuzzy math 10:21 yeah 10:21 p.m. after the executive session is concluded second I got a first and a second all in favor aye, aye. opposed passes 5 to 0 we're in executive session we did that math nothing to report we'll go on to item m 
adjournment. So moved. Second. First and second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Passes five to zero. Have a good night. We're adjourned. Thank you. Oh, shoot. I forgot to have all this stuff. Absolutely. Oh,